What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Doesn't seem to matter what I do. I'm always number two. No one knows how hard I tried. Ken may be forever relegated to number two. Barbie the movie was the decisive number one at the 2023 box office. But how high will it place on our Movies of the Year roundtable? And what of Barbie's release day partner, Oppenheimer? To help us sort it all out is the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and critic Mariah E. Gates. It's all ahead. Allens have been in the real world before. No one's noticed. Film spotting? They're all Allens. On Allen Spotting. Baby, Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh. I'm Adam, and welcome to our guest, year two here on our roundtable, Chicago-based critic Mariah E. Gates. Mariah, thanks so much for coming back. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And from the Chicago Tribune, I think I did the math here, Michael, just before we started recording. Year 17, is that possible, of Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune joining us for our roundtable? Yeah, I know. I can, you know, the years I've spent here can almost drink. You know, I mean, four more years. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> now, if you've listened to our best of the year shows the last few years, you'll know that this is not a traditional top ten countdown. We did all make our own individual top ten lists together. Those lists added up to about thirty movies, and I promise you, we will proclaim every one of those titles before this is over. Get your Pencils ready. There will be a quiz. Here's what I'll tell you off the top. No film appeared on more than two lists. And unlike many previous top 10 shows, there are no shared number one films this year. We all have distinct, unique picks. I I think a, a sign of the great year this 2023 movie year was. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We're going to start with what we call the consensus Films of the year. These are films that did appear on at least two of our lists. And then these are also the films probably that you would expect to see. Films that have made a lot of year-end lists. And then after all that, we will build up the big suspense. We'll get to our number one films of the year. At the very end, oh, we won't end there. We will share our outlier picks, the films that were unique to our list, or as we're calling it this year, the Mariah Gates show. (laughs) (laughs) I had a lot of outliers this year. Yeah, it'll be great. I think it's more of the Mariah Gates variety hour, you know. Yes. (laughs) There you go. I like that. And as if that all wasn't enough, we'll announce the finalists for the 2023 Golden Brick Award, our underseen film of the year from a new or emerging director. To kick it off, before we get to the movies and our choices, I'd love to hear, especially from our guests, if you have any general thoughts about the movie year. This is the year of Barbenheimer. This is the year that audiences seem to turn on Marvel and the MCU. This is the year that if we hadn't figured it out already, we realized our streaming service overlords may not have our best interests at heart. Or maybe you've just got a great movie-going experience of the year. While you guys think I can give you a quick one for me, it wasn't a 2023 film, but a movie I saw in 2023, finally seeing Stop Making Sense, the A24 mm. release of that on the big screen. And I saw it in a pretty small theater here in Iowa City at the great film scene theater. 
it had been playing for two or three weeks already, and it was a late Friday night showing. There weren't that many people in the crowd, but still just getting a chance to see that. And honestly, to hear it, the remastered audio, to hear that Talking Heads concert, of course, directed by the great Jonathan Demme, it was magical. And I'm not a dancer anyway under any circumstances. I'm really not a dancer when I'm sitting in a movie theater. And I promise you, I was moving in my seat the entire 88 or so minutes. So that that stands out for me as the best. I also had not seen it um, because I had been waiting to see it on the big screen. And I was not prepared <laughs> for like how hot David Byrne is in that movie. I know he was hot. <laughs> he's still hot. But like I was not prepared. Yeah, my daughter Sophie <laughs> my had, had a similar reaction. <laughs> I think I can say that comfortably. How did anyone go about life knowing that man was alive and that hot? Like, I don't. I love (laughs) seeing that film again. It's also, it's a different kind of concert film because it is highlights. It is an 80, what is it, an 82, I'm sorry, 88 or 96 minute film. I forget the running time. But it is the opposite Mm -hmm. of the three hour Taylor Swift, Beyonce thing, which, you know, has its pleasures. But this, but this has the select the selectivity at work is of such a high grade it's still my favorite concert film any thoughts from you josh yeah i'd like to circle back to what you mentioned at the top about the diversity of our list because it really does stand out since um at least i've been a part of these top 10s and it's helped me that reality helped me come around on something and i think this whole year the richness of the year, this year helped as well At first, I was kind of dismayed, you know, with the sheer amount of films coming at us. And I think this has been the case for a couple of years now, for me at least, whether that's, you know, just the boon in streaming services, needing content, whether it's, um, you know, technology, the cost of technology going down and we're getting more DIY productions that are getting some sort of distribution that we can watch. I don't know, globalization, probably something to do with it. Whatever the cause is, I have felt increasingly overwhelmed. But then I look at, the list that came in that we shared with each other. And it gave me a little bit of a different angle on it. It kind of took the weight off of this responsibility that I I don't necessarily need to cover everything. We've got great critics like Mariah and Michael to champion their own finds, to follow their own tastes, to share their own perspectives. Adam, you and I get to do that too now in a way it's liberating is, is kind of where I've arrived at. You know, it's yes, it's disconcerting to see the, the cinema monoculture break down a bit, right? Where, where we don't, where every critic doesn't have at least five shared titles on their list. That's a little different from what I'm used to at least, but yeah, working on this show with the three of you and seeing it come together, it's, I gotta say it's felt liberating. So I think that's been, that's been kind of cool and a marker for me of 2023. Well said, I think, One observation I'll share really about my list, but it does connect to yours as well and the diversity of of options. I'm not much of a sports gambler, but you'll hear this term sometimes thrown around, which is chalk, talking about choices that are maybe the favorites or kind of the expected result. And looking over my list, if I had predicted at the start of the year, if I had to make a top 10 list of what I thought it would be at the end of the year – Six of my 10 choices surely would have been there back in January, maybe wow. seven. Wow. And that is that is unique to me. And if it makes me at least amongst the four of us, and if it makes my list boring, you know what? So be it. We had an abundance of big name directors delivering movies this year due to a variety of industry issues, perhaps causing a, a log jam and they're finally released. And for me, those big names did not disappoint. And with that, We're going to hear 
about one of those big names. As we do get into our picks, we're going to start with a movie that debuted at Cannes back in May. Michael, it's your number 10 of the year. I have it a little bit higher at number eight. And Mariah, though it didn't actually crack your top 10, we are going to give you the honor of leading this pick with the help of Pop Culture Happy Hour's Aisha Harris. Hey, Film Spotting. This is Aisha Harris, co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour and author of Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And my favorite movie of 2023 is hands down Todd Haynes' May, December. I love everything about this movie. It, I love the melodrama. I love the, the comedy. And yes, it is a comedy. I don't care what anyone says. I also love how this movie is just so probing and questioning. Uh, it's a movie about the art of truth and the truth of art and how futile that entire exercise can be. And the performances here, Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, Charles Mountain, just amazing and this is a movie that for me just lends itself to so many repeat viewings because of how many layers there are here um and of course i can't leave out the really fantastic score by marcelo zarvos which really ties it all together so yeah for me it's may december no question i hope you all have a great and happy new year do you remember when you first met you came to the pet store looking for a job a summer after sixth grade seventh Why do you want to play me? When they sent me the script, I thought, here is a woman with a lot more to her than I remember from the tabloids. What would make a 36-year-old woman have an affair with a seventh grader? People, they like see me as a victim. I wanted it. Yeah, this didn't quite make my top 10, but it was, or top 11, you'll see I cheated, but um, it it came very close. uh, And I remember my partner, Robert Daniels, saw this at Cannes, and the only thing I asked him, because I didn't want him to spoil it, was, was Charles Melton good? Because I have watched 117 episodes of Riverdale, and I've invested a lot of my life knowing that Charles Melton was the best thing on Riverdale. <laughs> so I wanted him to launch properly um, because he's really good on Riverdale and Riverdale is its own, whatever you either like it or you hate it. He's so good in this movie. It's, it's like everything he was doing on Riverdale times 10, like he gets to be nuanced. He gets to be um, complex, sad, funny, all the things that you knew he could do. And he holds his own against literally two of the greatest actresses that have been doing it for the last 30 years, Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. And I, I love that for him. So I really, I really want to shout out Charles Melton. Um, you love to see a launch like that. But also I, I love that Todd Haynes has sort of gone back to the, the deep, like pastiche melodrama that I fell in love with when I first saw uh, Far From Heaven. I just think it's a really fascinating film and, and definitely plays differently. It's one of those films that's very rewarding to rewatch because you see it the first time and it ends and you're like, oh, when? And then you're watching it the second time going like, okay, what did I not pick up on? And these these performers are so, they're creating such complex characters that every time you watch it, you notice a different thing that you didn't notice the first time. And the script is so complex, that same thing she plants, Sammy Burt, she plants, plants little emotional like time bombs that you maybe didn't even notice the second time you watched it. 
Like it didn't not make my top list because it's not good. It didn't make my top list because there were so many good movies this year. I love the debate about it too. I love I love the debate on social media about May December because people are. Is it a comedy? Well, yeah, and even beyond the the I think kind of the crazy categorization of it as a comedy of the Golden Globes and it yes it's got it's got a very sneaky sense of humor and it's got moments where uh, it, it kind of like plays in a bigger way for kind of a, uh, uh, I don't, I don't want to say a winking kind of, um, melodramatic stylization, but just, you know, uh, maybe even a little too much, like the big hot dog moment at the fridge, I think is actually not one of the <laughs> film's strengths. I think that's actually kind of going, I think it's a slightly misjudged, but man, nothing else in that. I mean, so little else in that film is misjudged. And I think what you say about the performances, Mariah, I mean, these are important and more, these are two, uh, fierce uh, explorers of character, and and they they don't give a damn about about trying to find a way to make any of the behavior more um, uh, understandable, explainable, understandable. sympathetic. All of yes. it, all yeah. of it. It's very. I mean, they, that that I would that must have been a thrill to to shoot for someone like. Melton. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, cause it's like, well, talk about staying on your toes. Cause those two are, are really, when they get the right material and the right director, which Todd Haynes is. Yeah. I think it's a very Absolutely. stimulating film still. Yeah. I love to see it a second time. Can't wait. Michael, I don't know. I, I love the hot dog line. Adam, I was, you know, going to ask you, do we have enough hot dogs for this podcast? We're going to go long. I'm a little <laughs> we worried. definitely don't. We need, we need some music to, to come in there <laughs> dramatically <laughs> for sure. I'll go back, go back briefly before sharing a few thoughts on May, December, since this is a best of show, I want to thank Aisha for her voicemail and remind our listeners if they missed that episode, Josh, that was, I think for both of us, one of our favorite episodes Absolutely. of the year. Yeah. Aisha joined us to talk about her book that had come out, want to be reckonings with the pop culture that shapes me. And we all shared the top five movie characters who shaped us have a quick poll comment from a listener named Darren who said Todd Haynes has perhaps the greatest track record of any working director and has directed many masterpieces, but may December may be his most ambitious. It somehow manages to be both one of the most bizarrely funny and also deeply sad movies mm -hmm. of the That's year. Right. I think we all probably right. yep. agree with that. That combination of, of bizarre humor and deep sadness is, is a big part of why I have it at number eight on my list. It is also those performances. As you guys mentioned, I think it's Portman's best we certainly spent time agree. on that. Yeah. Good to hear. Yeah, at, least, got my back. at least in the top, top three for me sure. in terms of just brave bravery of her, her ability to play performance. Um, I am a big Vox Lux fan. Mm -hmm. I know that the movie is ambitious and maybe doesn't quite land it, land it, but Portman is so good in it because she's really good at finding the masks that people wear and putting them on and changing and sometimes falling into it. She does that in closer too, which I think, I think those three for me are the ones that I love the most and have rewatched the most. Although I also think she's fantastic in black Swan because she has been performing her almost her whole life. I think she really understands people who perform in life who aren't performers, but also why performers perform. Mm -hmm. And, and this is a film that really let her explore that and explore both like that feeling of, of truly wanting to get at truth, but realizing the absurdity of the idea of truth at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it, this was like, I don't know if Sammy Birch wrote this for Natalie Portman, but it feels like she did because it is like, I can't imagine anyone else getting at all those different layers so perfectly. Yeah. That really gets at what I wanted to express next, just because, you know, inevitably 
I never plan it, but inevitably I'm going to come up with some kind of overarching theme to my list. And Michael, you've already kind of hinted at it in terms of those performances and the way that both Moore and Portman play their characters. This is the movie that solidified what the defining theme of the year was for me. And it's this notion of trying to reconcile the unreconcilable <laughs> characters. Mm -hmm. and, and at least in, in one case, there's a movie we're going to talk about where I think the movie itself represents this, this struggle to understand, to make sense of the incomprehensible and the various contradictions and the quandaries that arise in that process. Portman's Elizabeth says it, when I'm lucky enough to choose my roles, I want to find a character that's difficult to on the surface understand. I want to take the person and figure out why are they like this? Were they born or were they made? And then that can run the gamut from the more notorious to the just anyone. That's when she's talking, I think, to the theater class in, in high school. But she she does believe, the movie shows us naively, that she can she can make sense of this. And as manipulative as she is, and we can certainly scoff at that overly earnest, overly serious artist approach, and we can shake our heads at some of our choices, I do think she's still the surrogate for us. Who, who we're all trying to answer the same questions. Could they, could they really be happy together? How, would, how could Gracie do this? And then the key question, I think, for the movie too, which is how can she do it and not feel any shame? And, and those are all questions that, that are connected to, but actually separate from the illegality and the immorality of it, which poses you know, another set of, of issues. So I, I think that we watch and we examine as she does, and we develop our own narrative to try to make sense of it all. And I do think Haynes pulls off this contradiction of saying, this process is on one hand futile. You're going to invariably overstate and oversimplify. And then on the other hand, he says, but it's inevitable and it's also fundamentally human. It's what we do. Why would you want to play someone who you think is a bad person? Are you kidding? I mean, pick any great role. Medea or Hedda Gobbler. Or, uh... Tony Soprano. Precisely. Cameron, it's, it's the complexity, it's the, it's the moral gray areas that are interesting, right? Before we move on, a bit more love for Todd Haynes, May, December. Hello, Film Spotting. Melissa Tamaja here calling in from the Pickford Film Center in Bellingham, Washington, with my favorite film of 2023. I adored so many films this year, so it's a torturous task to choose just one. But if I must, I think it has to be the film that's haunted me most, and that is May-December. From Sammy Birch's brilliant script, the stunning performances of the entire cast, but especially Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman, and Charles Milton, that bone-jolting, thrilling score, the masterful direction of Todd Haynes. May-December is this film that kept me off balance narratively and emotionally, making me laugh in one moment and feel utter devastation in the next, layers upon slipping layers. But it's also a film that admits that tonal thematic complexity is nonetheless a cohesive whole. There's a strong clarity of vision and purpose. And so it's a film that I'll be thinking about and basking in the feelings of for a long time to come. I loved it. If you haven't seen it already and we've sufficiently enticed you, May, December, currently available exclusively on Netflix. Next up, a film that had a limited release this past weekend. It's from a director whose previous film was almost 10 years ago. 
I looked back at our 2014 roundtable. I had under the skin at number three. Scott Tobias then had it at number two. Josh, you had it at number 10 on your list. And Michael, I looked up your review. You were the the outlier, but I know you were high on it. It just didn't quite make your top 10. We're going to get into your thoughts in a second on the new one from Jonathan Glazer. But first, let's go ahead and hear from Scott Tobias. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is your friend Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show and The Reveal, the newsletter I write with one of our co-hosts, Keith Phipps. And my favorite movie of the year is Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. Uh, Glazer has made only four films in 23 years, but like Stanley Kubrick, every film has become an event. Uh, The Zone of Interest is an audacious and chilling movie about Auschwitz that never spends a minute inside Auschwitz. Instead, it details the domestic life and career ambitions of Commandant Rudolf Haas as he works towards efficient mass murder while raising a family just outside the camp's wall. The way Haas and his family try to compartmentalize family life while this radiant evil seeps in from the outside is something I won't soon forget, thanks to Glazer's exceptionally bold filmmaking. In the rush of -of end-of-the-year movies, the zone of interest really stood out as something special to me. Anyway, hope you also had a great year. Uh, Very fine years for movies, and I hope you guys had a great uh, movie year as well. Thanks. I'd like to go back and add under the skin to my top 10 of its year. Uh, that was, that was a, <laughs> retroactively. It was a dopey oversight. I think I, I, this film is, is really remarkable. And I, I have to talk a quick minute about the book. It's based on Martin Amos's novel. Uh, and also the nerve it took for uh, writer director, uh, Jonathan Glazer to just uh, essentially throw most of the book away and make his own movie. In Martin Amos's novel, uh, Rudolf Hess, the real-life commandant of Auschwitz, uh, is is fictionalized uh, as Paul Dahl, who's just a, kind of like this preening buffoon, uh, and uh, the Amos sets it up like a like kind of a kind of a bizarre uh, and kind of oddly juicy romantic triangle in like the weirdest, most horrific possible setting, in that it's uh, it's almost like dangerous liaisons. In that there's a uh, this kind of a Valmont type, uh, really sardonic, attractive Nazi officer, fictional, who embarks on a strategic mission to seduce the commandant's wife, and a lot of the novel is told through letters, and uh, just like um, the novel Le Liaison Dangereux and the, and the film we know is Dangerous Liaisons, right? Um, all this intrigue, uh, all this uh, relayed through letters, love notes, all this, and all of that, all of that is gone in the movie. None of it is there. Uh, Glazer does everything, uh, uh, bold strokes everywhere. He goes back to the real life characters, uh, Rudolf Hess and his wife. And it is simply a matter of this finding this horrific everyday quality to what life might have been like for this family, this husband, wife, children, mother-in-law, birthday parties, picnics down by the river with human bones we hear about, but don't see at least in close up on camera floating down river. We see in the distance, the latest freight train carrying the latest shipment of Auschwitz prisoners headed for death. And then now and then we get these startling intimations of a kind of dream life amid all this banality of evil, nightmare, and none, nothing more startling or effective than the last few minutes of this film. Don't want to spoil it. film opens in mid-January in Chicago, but I, I also don't want to suggest that the zone of interest is one of these ordinary movies with ordinary spoilers. It's probably, for me... 
the most successful, radically unfaithful literary adaptation I've seen since There Will Be Blood, <laughs> which was based on uh, the novel Oil, but barely. Uh, and while I can see why some, notably Manola Dargis at the New York Times, who uh, wrote about it briefly coming out of the Cannes Film Festival, dismissed it as a kind of an art house stunt. I certainly did not experience it that way myself. The way it's filmed, it's dealing with five cameras here and there in this house. I think Glazer has probably ill-advisedly in interviews referred to it as like basically a big brother approach at Auschwitz where mm. you have this house household and you're just sort of like you know, dispassionately observing uh, mm -hmm. you know, what's happening on this floor, outside, this floor, second floor, all of it. Uh, it requires a different kind of acting, hardly any overt acting at all. The performances of Christian Friedel as Hess and Sandra Hewler, who's having a hell of a good year with this film, and Anatomy of a Fall, uh, just trying to run the household while pure inhuman madness rages all around her. I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I just think this film, it's not, it is not an easy sit. Uh, I saw it a second time. I wish I'd seen everything I really loved this year a second time like I did this one, but um, I, I, I think it's going to be one of those handful of uh, lasting pieces of art uh, related to or dealing with the Holocaust and, uh, um, you know, I, for me, it's like, like almost as great as Elia Wiesel's night or, uh, that book, Hitler's willing executioners a nonfiction account of what Germany was like in the mid and late thirties, just among the ordinary citizenry and the kind of leeway they had to do what they did with the Jewish population in Germany. Uh, I, I just, I, this film gave me the right kind of chills like I've never had. I think Glazer's almost a genius. Yeah, I'm with you there. I haven't read Manola's take yet. We'll see if she convinces me otherwise. For now, Michael, it's on my list as well. It's number 10 for me, and this is the choice I had in mind just a few moments ago when I was talking about one movie where the very act of the film itself seems to embody this notion of irreconciliation. And, and I'll underline here that understanding in the way I'm using it for my list and talking about the films of the year isn't meant to suggest that by understanding we we should or do exhibit or achieve any sense of empathy. The way Ebert talked about what movies can do. In the best movies of this year, empathy is an abstraction. And, you know, I'll go back to May-December. I actually believe Elizabeth. I believe Portman's character when she says she wants to make something honest, you know, and honor these characters. But it is all about her, ultimately. What Zone of Interest is exploring, of course, is something else entirely, human monstrosity on an unfathomable level. And the camera here, I hadn't read that. I didn't know that Jonathan Glazer had said that, but the camera is the surrogate then. Instead of a character like Portman, the camera is the observer. And that formal strategy that Glazer imposes to portray this incredible human capacity to rationalize and deny, he, he constantly reinforces how this house is in the shadow of this camp. We frequently see it without ever stepping foot inside. We constantly, constantly hear it, mm. which is really unnerving, the most unnerving aspect of the film. And then the camera isn't just static or detached. The The editing within the house does feel, again, I hadn't thought about Big Brother, but it, it eerily feels like surveillance footage. It feels like cameras are in place. So it just it just rigidly kind of cuts on action with no purpose beyond the practical. And to my recollection, I don't think he uses any close-ups in the film, which is the greatest empathy weapon that cinema can can wield. So, you know, it's a spin for me on the old adage about every 
war movie being really pro-war, no matter how horrified by these characters that you are, the act of making a movie about them potentially humanizes them. Depicting Hulu's character Hedwig as a wife and mother invariably does humanize her. It allows us to see her that way. And I think some some filmmakers may want to push those buttons and provoke us in that way. And I just think Glazer's, he's doing something different. The The key scene, one that stands out for me is one where the husband and wife are squabbling over their future and their next steps. And they're standing on a little dock over looking this idyllic stream or river just down from the camp. And not only do we never get a close-up, we don't, we never see them from the front even, or from the side, the camera just just kind of stays back at a remove and doesn't really ever allow us that transference of emotion that we most often get, or we, we do often get with the best of cinema. I don't know why I found that scene just slightly overstated in a way, and then it's sort of summing up all the themes that, you know, the fact that she's a social climber, <laughs> sort of like hideous, hideously motivated social climbers, like, hey, I'm a wife of the commandant, and, um, you know, she can't wait to show it off to her, you know, her relatives who visit, and, um, you know, the home, and how what kind of lovely garden they've made, and, you know, just with over the wall, this, this horrible belching smoke coming out of the smokestack. I mean, it's all. You don't see that though, Michael. Is sort of an overcompensation. It is, and it's 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 a part of an it's an irony, a, a devastating irony in a film that is about devastating irony, and that's not something you really see uh, as a dominant tone in any film about the Holocaust. I mean, and, and nor would I really want it to be, but somehow, most everything that Glazer chooses to do, yes, it doesn't. It doesn't conventionally demonize or empathize any of it. Uh, what it does is just make you realize that it it had to have had an element of this sort of rationalization as you talk about it, uh, just about um, uh, ignore, ignoring the, this, this beyond horrific nightmare that is going on in broad daylight uh, and and then there's a couple of leaps. That, that last five minutes for me just really was, that's, that's this was a year, I think, when I went over this list, where there were so many films that had unbelievably strong and striking last three, four minutes. And I don't, I don't know why with that really jumped out at me this time. But I mean, this, Past Lives, Killers of the Flower Moon. I mean, so many films. And um, I, I, that, that makes me think that people are still finding ways to surprise us just in the way they tell their stories. Michael, that leap you mentioned at the ending, I also want to emphasize, and I think you were getting at this in a phrase you used earlier, you talked about a dream life. It kind of veers into this dream life. There's an earlier leap that Glazer makes, both formal in terms of the camera work, the camera work dramatically shifting. And for the first time, and I'm not going to spoil this either, we get a new perspective outside of the one of this family. And I do have to say, uh, even though the zone of interest is just outside of my top 10, um, you know, for a while there, knowing all the praise, I did find this awful irony that you talked about too, Michael. I was asking myself, is am I going to have like another 90 minutes of this awful irony? Because right, I understand right. what's happening. And I've seen some people who have watched the whole film and, and responded it to it that way say, I got it. And then I had to endure it. Right. So I just want to emphasize for folks who are maybe resisting seeing it because of that, that this movie does make a shift. And for me, that's what elevated back, you know, almost into that top 10 group. Hmm. I would say, I think dream life, if, if that's what you're referring to, Michael is accurate for me. It also brought in this element of a dark fairy tale. And there are, you know, 
details on the screen that suggested that. There's also the fact that the daughter, one of the routine family activities are bedtime stories, and the daughter is having a fairy tale read to her. And then the movie veers off, not entirely. It's not like we leave the family, but it does bring in this extra element um, that I thought clarified something the movie was interested in, and that's moral vision. Or to the point that's already been brought up, you know, moral hearing, because we really do hear in this movie more than we see. But this extra formal element raised the idea of what might a moral vision look like. And it just brought more to the film than what I thought I might be getting for another hour and a half. It's 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 more dexterous and complicated than than maybe that initial description, which is where we should leave it, suggests. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And also all of it is more interesting and I, I think dramatically justified, at least even just in terms of risk, than than what Martin Amos came up with, which is, you know, this sort of <laughs> You know, you know, dangerous liaisons, romantic, tri- uh, you know, uh, dramatic triangle, which is just to me that that had a very uneasy effect on me, and not not in a provocative way, just more like, are you really, you know, and and it went for a certain the it was really much more of like a comedy of manners in a in kind of a hideous way, <laughs> and and I I don't know I, I'm not I don't know Martin Amos I, I I think I never read a single novel by him so I'm the worst person to make this judgment but I I just pleased that Glazer had the nerve to just say goodbye. I love that you mentioned moral hearing and this this is my favorite use of sound in film the whole year mm. I think the way that there's two two films that to really solidify the dissonance that these characters are living under and for me my favorite character in the film was Hedwig's mother and I don't want to spoil the film because most of America hasn't seen it yet but Hedwig's mother makes a decision because of a certain thing that happens that I was like that for me is the most pointed moment where he's saying something relatively about morals. Um, everything else is very observational and the characters are observational and then, and almost passive other than their, their desire to, for upward mobility until, and even she is, um, mm-hmm. she's impressed with Hedwig's garden and all of this. And then she hits a moment that I was like, this is, this is the moment in the movie for me. And it's the moment the rest of us hit like from the snap, you know? And I think what's fascinating is to see that where he's testing when people, when they hit that Mm, moment mm -hmm. themselves, whether it's you're the viewer or you're a character in the film. And um, I think the thing that is still so un, um, what was the term you used, Adam? Irreconcilable. Yeah, irreconcilable about the horrors of the Holocaust is like, how many people never hit that moment? <laughs> how many people never hit that moment? Or they thought, oh, well, it's it's not that bad. Or they, you know, they didn't believe what they saw. They didn't believe what they heard. It's it's really a fascinating film that makes you question not just the banality of evil, but like how, how would any of us live under the, these circumstances? How would any of us, where is every, anyone's line? I'm so with you on that scene with the mother. And I won't get into it either. It's the scene of the movie for me. The only reason I didn't go into it, Mariah, is it might be my scene of the year. And there's a really I good chance. I think it's my, I think, yeah, yeah it's There's certainly... a really good chance in LA in January when I'm sharing my pick for scene of the year, it's going to, it's going to get some time. It certainly was the scene um, that made me gasp the hardest, I think, all year where I realized what she, what 
what she where she'd hit, and I was like, oh wow, okay, that's great. It's it's, it's a gr- that's a brilliant way to to so look good. at it. I think, Mariah, because because you look at what it takes. Uh, the commandant Hess, what what it takes to even give him a glimmer of the moment that he doesn't really experience. It takes like this this fantastical, otherworldly vision that we get at the end of the film, and even then, he's just puzzled by it. You know, and he goes yeah. on with his life because that uh, he did, <laughs> he did go on. With Although his life. there is, there is, and we are verging on spoiler here. I'm just going to say a gesture related to some sort of awareness he may be having that Adam, I wonder if you thought of the act of killing at all, um, because there is a similar figure mm-hmm. who, um, has a similarly visceral response or tries to even more tellingly in the act of killing. Um, mm-hmm. and man, that, that moment of, um, you know, recognition, but then again, disassociation on the part of the commandant uh, is so jarring and brought me right back to the act of killing for sure. Next up, everything Wes Anderson made this year. So fantastical (laughs) visions of a very different kind is what we're going to get to now. Back in June, we got Wes Anderson's 11th feature, Asteroid City, a not at all complicated movie within a play, within a backstage TV documentary featuring a typically huge Anderson ensemble led by Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson. Then in September, we got four Anderson-directed short films, all adapted from Roald Dahl short stories. Ray Fiennes, Benedict Cumberbatch, Dev Patel, Ben Kingsley, and others played multiple roles in those films. So this is maybe the only one, the only case where three of us picked the same movie, except not really because we are cheating, or at least one of us is cheating here considerably. We'll we'll find out who that is in a moment. You have, Michael, the doll shorts at eight. Josh... You're, you're combining this 2023 collection at number three. I'll do my time then to set up why I have Asteroid City at number four on my list, as much as I love all of those shorts as well. And I'll start with a quote here from a listener, Mike Tchaikovsky, who said, along with Bo Burnham's Inside Netflix special, Asteroid City is one of the few films that is captured with nuance some of the ineffable experiences of the last few years. Somehow it's a fully emotional rendering of what I've been thinking, feeling, and experiencing politically, socially, and emotionally ever since 2020. I don't understand the play I'm in. I'm always wondering, am I doing it right? And I guess I'm just going to learn from Adrian Brody's theater director and his advice to an actor played by Schwartzman, keep telling the story. Even if I'm not sure about the story, I'm in anymore. So Mike really tapping into where I'm going with my list and why Asteroid City is so high. We don't understand the play we're in. The the play, the story characters are participating in as a construct, as an allegory for this larger drama that we're all part of. And and really what can you do but but keep telling the story? That line, Josh, you'll recall, was one of the key moments that unlocked what I thought Anderson was up to with this film when we reviewed it. The other was the moment with Maya Hawke's teacher character when she's talking to her students outside the the motel. And she says, anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system, as far as we know. <laughs> and little Billy says, except now there's an alien. <laughs> it, it's, it's not as if the world ever made sense before. You've got Schwartzman's Augie losing his wife, his children losing their mother, Hanks Stanley losing his daughter. None, none of this makes sense. 
But there are some rules that we all live by or some rules that we think we live by that we think we know that there are only nine planets in our solar system is one of them. And another is that we're alone in the universe. And then a little green creature comes along and throws all of that into into chaos. And serendipitous for me, maybe, was that at the time I saw Asteroid City, I was reading Isaac Butler's great book, The Method, about Stanislavski. And you've got Stanislavski trying to offer actors and and present to this the world, present to Russia this new this new type of theater, uh, a system that would not give you all the answers, but give you the right approach to ask the right questions and try to get at those answers. And as the paradigm around the human experience shifted, Stanislavski saying you have to shift the paradigm for reflecting that experience. So that that other little aspect of this film, all these narrative threads that Anderson's playing with, the actors playing actors element and all the stuff about the actor's studio, that that wasn't just interesting to me or another complex layer. It really connected neatly to all the movie's central themes. And that's why I've got it in number four. Schubert! 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 Huh? Schubert! Yes. What's wrong? Are you on? Technically, but General Gibson just started the scene where the president doesn't accept his resignation. I've got six and a half minutes before my next line. I need an answer to a question I want to ask. Okay. Am I doing him right? Oh. Well, <clears throat> I told you before, there's too much business with the pipe, with the lighter, with the camera, with the eyebrow, but aside from that, on the whole, in answer to your question, it's enough. You're doing him just right. In fact, in my opinion, you didn't just become Augie. He became you. I feel lost. Good. He's such a wounded guy. I feel like my heart is getting broken, my own personal heart, every night. Good. Do I just keep doing it? Yes. Without knowing anything? Yes. Isn't there supposed to be some kind of an answer out there in the cosmic wilderness? Woodrow's line about the meaning of life. <laughs> Maybe there is one. Right. Well, that's my question. You know what, Adam? I, I know you disapprove of, of what I'm doing here, I bunching do. it together. So let me rearrange things. I'm going to put Asteroid City, number one, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, number two. <laughs> Okay. The swan is three, uh-huh. rat catcher is four, and poison is number five. Don't ask me what I'm doing with the other films that I had on my list so far. But yeah, I'm bundling these. I have to. And What are you, Jake um, you from know, State Farm? What, what is this bundling? <laughs> maybe, maybe. He is. I could probably have gone, literally gone this route if this had not been such an incredibly strong year outside of Wes Anderson's staggering output. I mean, this alone speaks to the kind of year we've had. But one thing about Asteroid City, the further I get away from it, um, what I think makes it distinct from everything else Anderson has done is its lack of tidiness and its lack of closure. Um, And I don't necessarily mean this formally. It's as controlled formally as ever. Thank goodness. I'm not sick of that. But in this sense of not moving towards resolution, which is what comedies generally do, and I always say the blessing of Wes Anderson's films is that at heart they're comedies. I think this still is. But it does not move towards that resolution or closure as clearly as some of his other films do. It sits us, and this speaks to the comment Um, that you read, Adam, Mike, I believe, it sits in the anxiety of the current moment. It filters it through the anxiety of the 1950s, right? But it sits in the anxiety of the current moment just as much. And yet somehow this movie manages a certain amount of hope and consolation. That's why it's not so far removed from the other stuff he does. Uh, I think it's, it's the admitting we don't know everything, we can't control everything, 
but doesn't stop there. What are we going to do now? Yes, we're going to keep telling the story, whatever that story might be for us. Um, We're going to look for connections where we may find them, where we need to grow them and feed them. Uh, And that is a different sort of consolation, I think, than some of the other stuff that he's done. Uh, And then just a quick note about the doll shorts, which were wonderful and unfortunately lost on Netflix. Um, They were that speaks to how they were a curse and a blessing kind of of streaming. It, It really captures that experience, right? We talked about at some point, Adam, revisiting those shorts. I think we both did. I I did a close study of how they were cinematic, distinctly cinematic, not just narration, acts of narration. And why could I do that? Because they're sitting right there on Netflix, right? It's so accessible to me. That's a blessing. But the curse is that, as I said earlier on the show, if Netflix doesn't know that I need to know when a new Wes Anderson film is available, the first time I queue up Netflix, then it's not working. It's just not working. And if it was lost for me, not that it was really lost, but unclear, difficult for me to find, how that's certainly the case for other people. So that's the frustrating, that's the curse of it. Exactly. That that I mean, I really, really love you know these four shorts a lot. And and for me, it's it's the most satisfying work Anderson's done in a long time, just flat out. It adds up to about 90 minutes of an experience for these stories. And Netflix doesn't make it easy for you to even figure out, oh, there's others. Oh, I just saw Henry yes. Sugar, the long one, yep. 41 minutes. You know, oh, maybe I should take a look at the others. Well, good luck to you. You know, I I, I can't remember if it, if it hits the automatic feed, you know, stay tuned for this thing that Netflix does. But, you know, all that money thrown to so many good filmmakers and kind of, and then like good luck in the swim of things, folks, we're going to dump your, we're going to dump the work without the proper sort of help for, for viewers to find all for. And, and I, I always say this, your own, your own bundling uh, issues aside, Josh, I think, you know, the way to see the four roll dolls or Henry sugar first, it's a long one. uh, The swan, the rat catcher and poison to me, that's the right order. Just sort of mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, sweet and sour, bittersweet, more comic, you know, all of it sort of balanced properly that way. Here's the, here's the distinction for me with how, why these four really work. There's a lot of actors who sort of, uh, are, uh, try to meet the challenge of Wes Anderson's chosen preferred style of a certain kind of deadpan delivery, usually very rapid, and uh, very little vocal inflection, and uh, not not a lot of overt uh, sentimentality or uh, spin on the jokes. Any of it, you know, very straight. When you have actors as good as Ray Fiennes, who I think is the very best interpreter of Anderson's work as an actor, because I love mm, that central, possible. Yeah. central performance in Grand Budapest, my favorite film of his. Um, Cumberbatch, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Ben Kingsley, all these people, they. You find variations that you do not find with somebody like, in my view, Jason Schwartzman taking the male lead in Asteroid City. He's doing the best he can. He is a medium good actor. And I, I, I wish he, I wish I didn't, I, I think he's very effective in some things, very funny in some things. And he does not have what some of the, some of these particular actors have in the quartet of doll stories. And, and there's a, there's, there's something that's lost there. First, Michael, Bill Murray would like a word, <laughs> though. You know what? I agree with you. I agree with you that that Fines is supreme there. And as much as I like Jason Schwartzman's performance in Asteroid City, and I did, I, I thought it was probably his deepest work to date. Did you watch yeah, the film? Hard. Did you watch it? Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard when you're comparing him to Fines. So I'm just not going to do that. 
Michael. I'm going to take these as two completely separate experiences. They are, they are, experiences. they are. They are. Yes, they, as well they should <laughs> the be. Shorts, the shorts are available exclusively on Netflix. Asteroid City is currently streaming on Prime Video and available VOD. Mariah, any, any thoughts on the year in Anderson? To Michael's point, though, Tom Hanks was in Asteroid City, and it's hard to see him in a supporting role kill it and then see right. Schwartzman, who I love basically do some sort of method version of Hemingway. Okay, this is getting out of control. Jason Schwartzman is wonderful at Asteroid City. like Hemingway. (laughs) I just, I love Jason Schwartzman as like a persona. I don't think he's a complex Mm, actor most of the time. Tom Hanks is both a persona, an actor, a leading actor, and a character man, which is why you can throw him in that grandpa role and he's, brings such complexity to it. Um, but it's hard to to see someone that good. And I'm also like, I'm not a big Scarlett Johansson fan, but I also thought she was acting circles around. She's him. really good so in this. Really good together. In this. Yep. She is. That's it's how highly the, I feel about her performance. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the few I would say where I'm like, I don't mind her, which or like, I get it when I can, when I do get it, I'm like, oh, I see why people like her when I don't get it. It's like, I really don't like her. But this was one of the ones where I could get it. And I, I really did feel like he wrote the role for Schwartzman. That's why he played it. But for me, it it didn't, it wasn't a dynamic, as dynamic you need it for the closest you get to a lead in that big ensemble. Yeah, I think for me, it was that exactly what you're saying, Mariah. It was a shift away from, he to- absolutely has a persona for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been one formed with his work with Anderson, right? From Rushmore on. I think I just fell for this one so much because it was a shift away from it. And and I didn't see it trying to adopt another persona so much as you as, as just kind of clenching those previous performances out of him. I just, I just so enjoyed seeing him try something different that I thought he was successful at that also served this role is this, this minimalist father who is performing that way because he lives that way, right? He's, he's not going to relate to, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about how are we going to respond to the helplessness that's in our face now? Hmm. In addition Hmm. to these aliens, are, are we going to shift how we move in the world and watching Augie slightly shift that way, very slightly, um, in a very non Schwartzman manner. I think that's why it connected with me. Could you folks correct me if I'm wrong on this? Is one thing I did respond to strongly with Asteroid City is that it does have a quality of light and a visual quality that is not like any other Anderson film that I remember. Uh, in that, for it, sure, it looks like it's the kind of you know it's all these all these very very meticulously painted sets pieces. I think they shot it in Spain mostly, very hot, sunny exteriors, mm-hmm. and it, it, it for a while your eye is playing tricks on you because you don't quite parse the digital practical mix of what's going on. And it's a great testament, I think, to the results that you don't know. And and uh, uh, it could have been other directors. No, nobody else would have made this film. But if a different director had taken it on, they might have thought, well, it's all green screen. We'll just do a green screen, you know, green screen. And, you know, we don't need to go to Spain outside for this one. But he did. <laughs> Anderson did. And it does look and feel different from everything else he's done, even though the framing and the, you know, and, and every if sort of a lot of the decisions going on that just affect the rhythm of the scenes and just the visual composition of a, of a, of a static shot or when the camera moves, you know, that that's all very much in the Anderson mode, uh, however you define that. But, the, but it does feel different and look different. And I appreciate that. 
I also did really love the stop motion alien. Oh, and the song. Um, the song come on. And, and, the song? and the, and the White um, song? person playing the alien in the TV thing. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Felt like an homage maybe to Earth Girls Are Easy. I don't know if that was purposeful or not, but I, I did really enjoy it. I really love the song Gear Alien, too, I, I, which is actually introducing <laughs> a dance great. number called The Spaceman. I love that. I mean, that, that's a pretty damn yeah. delightful minute. That was charming. One, two, three. There alien who walked in heaven, thin and skinny, about six foot seven. Don't we know you ain't our brother or your friend or foe or other? Well, through three choices so far, we've managed to hear my number 10, my number 8, Asteroid City, my number 3. We're going to get now to a film I have at number 7. Josh, you've got it all the way up at number 2, and it's one of our special guests, number 1. Hey, Adam and Josh. This is Mitchell Beaupre, managing editor at Letterboxd and co-host of the podcast, The Letterboxd Show. And I'm here to sing the praises of my favorite film of 2023, Justine Triette's Palm d'Or winner, Anatomy of a Fall. This was honestly a tremendous year for one of my favorite genres, which is the courtroom drama from the K-Mutiny Court Martial and the Burial to sections of Oppenheimer and even Killers of the Flower Moon. And Anatomy of the Fall brought us into the specifically nutty circus that is the French court system, where a woman is put to the task of defending herself against accusations of murdering her husband. It's a riveting investigation that we see occur on the stand as she's hounded by a supremely, beautifully, wonderfully snarky prosecutor, and the media at large kind of puts her under the microscope. But what I found most fascinating about Anatomy of the Fall was its slow dissection into the anatomy of the marriage itself. Each scene sort of uncovers these new layers in their relationship, exploring the ways in which we all kind of build up resentment, ache, jealousy, and sometimes even rage over time. And it just really makes you wonder, you know, if my spouse suddenly died under mysterious circumstances, how likely is it that I would go to prison for murder? So as you can see, an accidental fall is going to be hard to defend, given the height of the windowsill. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's an investigation for uh, more suspect uh, and your 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 most suspicious death, yeah. yeah. And your témoin assisté because you were the only person there. Okay. And of course, you're his wife. Um, now, looking for a stranger who walks in, kills him while you were sleeping right above, and Daniel was up for work is a shitty strategy. Samuel had no enemies. That stop. Make- stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. As a bonus, you know, this film, it also contains, I think, the best child performance we've seen in years and the best dog performance maybe ever. Uh, It just it's one of those movies that it's two and a half hours long within the first like five minutes. I found myself leaning in, wanting to soak up every piece of dialogue, figure it all out. And it really just kept that going up all the way until the final sort of perfectly intentionally deflating resolution at the end. I really love it. I can't stop thinking about it. I hope that Anatomy of Fall is one that's going to be talked about plenty on your guys' year-end episodes. Um, Thanks, as always, for another fantastic year of film spotting and looking forward to more in 2024. 
we have wrestled and re-wrestled and praised and repraised uh, this film on the show, Adam. It's layers of meaning and potential meaning and interpretation. And I'm at the point where all I really want to do is lobby. Every year we do this around one film, but it is high time we get a Best Animal Oscar category because Snoop the dog absolutely deserves it, not just for the dog performance, but the crucial part, this animal plays to what's going on in the film, right? We spent time talking about him as the witness, maybe <laughs> the star witness who is somehow never called because as far as I can follow French courtroom you know, procedure, they should totally allow animals to testify. It's a free for all otherwise in there. And I loved this movie in so many ways. And the crazy thing is, as soon as it was over, I knew I had to watch it again to even start to wrap my mind around it. Haven't been able to do that yet. And yet don't feel like I'm settled at all that I, that I can just be confident of how I feel. This is a movie that could be my number one, in other words, mm. uh, and probably would be if I watched it again. Who knows? But it's here at number two. I feel okay with that. And I'm honestly eager to hear what Mariah and Michael have made of it just a little bit because uh, I feel like I've been chewing on it so much myself. Well, I will say my uh, opinion on it sort of is dampered compared to a lot of people solely because I saw this and probably I should have rewatched it, but I saw this at Carlo Vivari in the Czech Republic, right? A couple hours after I watched a 1961 film by Yazua Masamura called The Wife Confesses that had almost the exact same plot oh, wow. and a, almost the exact same structure in terms of a woman is accused of killing her husband in what may or may not have been an accident. Um, and she goes and is in trial for it. And you get some background, flashback background to their like unhappy marriage. You'll get her connection with a, you know, a past friend. Like it's, it's like almost the exact same film. It's wild. And I saw them on the same day. Crazy. <laughs> and, huh. and I, I honest, no, no, no disrespect to Justine Trier. Cause I think she did an amazing film, but it's not as good <laughs> as this, this Japanese film that is, um, yeah, Masamura is like, some of his films are on movie right now in the United States. Uh, there's like a real uh, t attempt to resurface his career outside of Japan and into Western audiences. And he's truly one of the great like post-war Japanese filmmakers and did all kinds of different genres. And this one is so sharp. And um, the actress Ayuka Wakawa is one of his big, um, she, I think they made like five films together. And so we just saw this film and it's stunning. And then we go to see Anatomy of a Fall and it's like almost the same film and equally stunning. Like uh, I think Sandra Huller should, I'm always, there's always like a f at least one actress from in an international language film that doesn't make it to the top five and should have. Like last year, I think it was Vicky Creeps. Um, I think Sandra has the biggest chance since like Fernando Montenegro to actually like make that leap. Or I guess um, Penelope Cruz made that, that leap a couple of times, but it's, it's rare. And I think I hope she does because I think her performance is stunning, but I don't think the film is as good as this Japanese film. And so I, th I feel like I wasn't as wowed because I had seen like a better version of the same story. If that makes mm. sense. But I don't think it's a bad film. I, I absolutely think it's a great film. I, I don't fault anyone having it in their top because I think it is incredibly well made. I love the way she utilizes language and the way that language can change, not just, 
the different languages she speaks, but the language of a, a mother and a, fa- a son, a wife and a husband, a teacher and a, and a student, like uh, that use of language, I think is really, really smart in the film and a dog, <laughs> right? Cause the dog is different with the dad and the dog is different with the child and the dog is different with her. And, and I think it's really insightful in the ways in which relationships shift depending on who you're with. Um, I just wish I hadn't seen it back to back with this other <laughs> very similarly plotted film. It's sort of a weird caveat on mine too. I think it, I don't think it's a great film. I think it's a good film, but I'm basing it only on one viewing and it was a part of a kind of a flurry of very early screenings for the Chicago International Film Festival. Mm. Um, didn't even write about it in full, so I never really clarified my thoughts about why I thought it was good, not great. Uh, and I just need a, simply a second viewing that'll feel more like the first one at this point. But I do love the acting. I do love also the reminder that you can take the building blocks of courtroom drama and a basic kind of mystery premise and reorient them any way you like to, as Mariah says, you know, really just talk much more about these, the riddles of, of almost any marriage, you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's just got a really distinct and peculiar rhythm in a great way, you know, that, that it's, it just spins out and spends more time where you don't usually expect it, even in, you know, films from wherever, you know, France, Eastern Europe, anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and I see why people really go crazy for it. And I, I'm eager to see it a second time just to kind of honestly figure out why, you know, it, it was very good for me, but not quite an extra dimension. So we'll see. Listener Liz Hatfield wrote in and said, this was a stellar year for movies. I can make a case for any one of my top five for being film of the year. But the movie that had the most staying power in my mind is Anatomy of a Fall. It's a film that I could watch a thousand times and come away with a slightly different perspective every time, which is a testament to the masterful script and performances. I'm looking forward to rewatches of films like Poor Things, John Wick 4, Asteroid City, and May December. But I don't think any other film this year will be quite as rewarding as Anatomy. I said May, December was the movie where the 2023 theme all came together. Well, it's because it was the first movie I watched after seeing Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, and so then as I, as I saw more films and I reflected on previous watches like Asteroid City, I realized, okay, there is a trend here for me. It wasn't just a, a few isolated cases and the unfathomable here from Daniel's perspective. And in addition to Snoop, I'm going to say he's more important, Josh, only because he can actually communicate and he does so well with those incredible eyes. Um, Daniel's perspective don't, is really the, hey, don't the core of the movie. Snoop. Don't outguess Snoop. I know. His perspective is the core of it, the son. And what he has to reconcile is that his father is not only gone, but that the primary suspect is his mother. Could she be capable of that? How do you reconcile some of the facts with what you know about her or maybe just what what you need to know about her as her as her son that Mitchell mentioned the perfectly intentionally deflating resolution? It's that I I know what Mitchell's saying. And also it's also the most provocative ending of the year. And Mm. it's one I've kind of been thinking about nonstop for a month. It's one I wrote about in a lot more detail on Letterboxd, specifically Mm. getting at the question of understanding or or trying to understand through narrative creation and the implications of that. So it's not always a case where I end up loving a movie just because it's got an ending that leaves me questioning it. But the ending in this case just so wonderfully opens up so many options for further inquiry that that for me it did it did elevate a movie I was already enjoying but it definitely elevated the word, the word novelistic gets thrown around a lot to describe 
film in sort of a general way, and I, I probably misused it that way myself. But th- this film genuinely is; it has a kind of a novelistic feel where you don't, you're not, you, you have many avenues of possible exploration being explored, and it it doesn't mm. really stick to one genre, and, I, and that's that's all very much to its benefit. Mitchell Beaupre, not alone among our guests in rating Anatomy of a Fall, the very best film of the year. Hey, Film Spotting. It's David Chen from the Filmcast and the Decoding Everything newsletter. Right now, my favorite film of 2023 is Anatomy of a Fall. Beyond just following what happens with Sandra and the recriminations that follow, the film is about how we know things and how we think we know things. So many of us think we know what someone else's marriage or relationship is like, but in reality, we're just looking at a map through a straw. We only see a tiny part of the whole picture, and it's only the people inside the thing that know what's actually going on. Anatomy of a Fall is thrilling, meticulous, thought-provoking, and features some of the best performances I've seen this year. It's going to stick with me for a very long time. Keep up the great work film spotting, and if you're listening to this and interested in more of my thoughts on film, I'm David Chen. Check out my newsletter at decodingeverything.com. Anatomy of a Fall is still playing in select theaters. A digital release is scheduled for December 22nd, so by the time... Most people hear this episode, you should be able to catch up with Anatomy of a Fall. And now, it's time to say hi to Barbie. Hi, 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 Barbie. The Greta Gerwig blockbuster is your number 10 of the year, Josh. It's all the way up at number four for you, Michael. Yep. Barbie, number four. I, you know, what can I say? I, I'd love to read a transcript someday of all the frustrating meetings Greta Gerwig had to take with either a Mattel <laughs> executive or some Warner Brothers factotum to get the movie made her way and just to get a number, get the budget approved for the number. I'm just Ken that they tried to cut. And, oh, no, we can't afford it. And I can't imagine the movie without it. And I think what she accomplished with her ideas of how A, to create a narrative to bring Barbie out of Barbie land and into the real world, which is a pretty simple idea, and B, how to make that work first in comic and stylistic terms and then gradually more and more in ways that are really surprising and bittersweet and spoke to like every kind of audience member on the planet. Amazing. I mean, I, I, I will never forget uh, the sleepover going on uh, on the second floor on the opening weekend of Barbie where, you know, uh, then 13-year-old Will and five other, uh, you know, bros are up there gaming, blah, 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 pizza, this and that. And then, you know, about 9, 15, you know, you figure they're staying in for the night and he, he comes down and he says, oh, I wonder what the chances, voices just changed at this point. You know, I wonder what the cha- <laughs> what are the chances of getting uh, six tickets to Barbie for 9.30? What do you think? <laughs> and I thought this film is, yeah, yeah it's fine. It's, and and three, of this, uh, three of the guys upstairs had already seen it uh, the night before you know, on Thursday opening. So, I mean, I just, I got a kind of a tingle, you know, <laughs> and I thought this thing is going to work. It's just going to fly. And I, I love seeing that, uh, the casting, you know, uh, Margot Robbie, who else, uh, Ryan Gosling is Ken, uh, who else, uh, uh, right down to, you know, uh, who, uh, Alan, you know, the mysterious cryptic sort of, you know, also <laughs> ran, uh, you know, fr- entirely relatable kind of yeah, fr- a friend of Ken, you know, who else besides Michael Sarah? I don't think Barbenheimer, a phenomenon like that will ever happen again. And I don't even know how many lessons there are to be drawn from it. And even those studios scratch their heads, you know, for at a high salary, you know, a lot of these people trying to figure it out, but the summer of 23, with Barbenheimer pulling in millions, millions of people back into 
theaters like a like like some sort of a pair of oversized acme magnets you know in a roadrunner cartoon get back to the theaters it's fun that was fun and you know does it mean anything in the long run is it even an infinitesimal you know the percentage uh, of warner brothers discovery's financial problems solved no it can make a billion and a half and it still doesn't mean anything to warner brothers bottom line really but it meant something for Greta Gerwig to get it made this way. And I, I just thought it was a ton of fun. And it also follows, it didn't have anything to do with Anton Chekhov, but it followed Chekhov's rule, speaking of Stanislavski, since he's already come up, of, you know, get the last first and then kind of, and then and then see what you can do. And that's exactly what how that film worked for me. It's that degree of difficulty you're talking about, Michael, why I think Barbie hung on my top 10 list here. Um, even as the year wore on, great films started really piling up um, and it did manage to hang on here at number 10 for me. I was I was just talking to my daughter who came home from school this week about Greta Gerwig and, um, and how this might actually be her most original film um, and the degree of difficulty has something to do with this. You know, Lady Bird is this autobiographical um, effort in a very familiar genre, the coming of age genre, right? Uh, Little Women, an adaptation of a beloved literary source. Now, I'm not saying that makes Barbie her best. I actually have those two films, you know, ranked higher than Barbie in her filmography for whatever that's worth. But I do want to just throw this out there that um, for those who are not taking it quite as seriously as a creative challenge um, and seeing this as something that was maybe easier, uh, the degree of difficulty, and and Margot Robbie as a producer too deserves credit for this as well, shepherding this through so that it is an original personal vision with this sort of material. Um, And I think in the end, despite all the laughs, the wonderful musical set pieces, um, whatever else it might mean to you, I think in the end, that's that's the real hallmark of it is what they managed to pull off with this thing against all possible odds. Yep. And the movie, if the movie didn't have an angry core to it, that that, that is also eloquent, as eloquent as it is angry, as illuminating and as witty as it is angry, it just would not have kept going and going and going like it did. And I'd, so, say, I'd say a curious core. For me, it was more a curious core because this did not feel like a screed at no, all. I no, think no, that's no, not saying that. One yeah. of the things that makes it personal is like this really is Gerwig and again, possibly Robbie, you know, working through their complicated feelings about the phenomenon that is Barbie and watching them do that, I think, um, you know, was was so much fun and enlightening and um, also made it very distinct. And I think, you know, uh, whether or not the discussions, how many discussions they had and what they were like, you know, I don't know. I haven't read about them. But and in addition to that, I think, I mean, if you think of the crap that Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie had to put up with as performers for years and years in Hollywood, I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing about the condescending, patronizing or worse behavior, uh, you know, in, in whether it's sort of film and production or just on the set. I think there's there's a little bit of that uh, sprinkled all the way through Barbie, just in how you know this um, you know this queen in her own world is is kind of brought down in sort of a painful way, you know, these uh, by by another another world, another set of eyes, and and it's uh, it's it's got it's really got it's got something that is just not just good franchise material, not good IP or whatever. But I agree with you, Josh. It, it's this, it was, it was one roll of the dice after another. And like 89% of them came up looking good. <laughs> to borrow a phrase there from Josh, Mariah, 
do you have complicated feelings about the phenomenon that is Barbie the movie? Well, first of all, I have complicated feelings about Barbies, but I did play with them. And I will say as a child, I took all of my Barbies, were, most, most of my Barbies were hand-me-downs. And I played with them like they were Scooby-Doo characters and mostly did murder <laughs> mysteries. Um, sequel, sequel. So that, if that tells you anything. Fantastic. One, one of our Kens, my dog, ate the head off of it and he was dressed like a surfer. And so every single murder mystery, eventually the reveal was that Headless Surfer Ken did it. <laughs> That's how I played with Barbies. So oh, wow. I don't know what that says about me. but um, Eli, Eli I Roth. I think Eli Roth is working on the film. Yeah, 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 probably. Um, I found the film very entertaining and very funny. I don't think it's as smart in terms of uh, its politics as it could be, but I do think that's not on Gerwig. I think it's on the limitations of any film made at that level. They just, mm. you, it's impossible. As you said, there's too many people you have to convince. And so my mixed feelings on Barbie is less about what it tried to do and more about what a film at that level is capable of doing. Um, but I also am unsure <laughs> that Gerwig has seen a lot of like fiery, strident feminist cinema of the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't feel like she has, not in any interviews I've ever read. Definitely not with Margot Robbie either. I feel like they both came to feminism in a post-Riot Girl sort of branding of feminism you know like Beyonce with the feminist thing behind her kind of where it's very watered down and a lot of the politics are gone and I find that very frustrating and I find that very frustrating with a lot of films that are labeled feminist today um and I think it's more of uh it's the same I think the same issue a lot of people um a lot of my friends who are queer queer writers find with mainstreamed queer cinema is the more mainstream you something becomes the less it is able to pierce um, that said, I do think it's a really good, like, starter film. I think it's really good at laying groundwork of, like, hopefully you continue into, like, feminist cinema of, of like, radicalized, you know, other countries like Zamizanga and things like that, where it's, like, these women in countries where there is a lot more to think about than just the pressure of being pretty and having a job, which feels like a lot of, like, that America Ferrera speech is the most like peak American a thing point. I've ever seen in my life. Um, I really, I really didn't like it. Um, it felt like, a, it felt like something from 1998, quite frankly. And that's frustrating. And, but I think it's less, uh, less on Gerwig and the film than on where American feminism is because it's been frankly abandoned. And obviously if you look at our policies, it got, it got turned into like, let's buy a pink mug. And now we don't have abortion rights, you know, and I can't put that on Barbie. Barbie is a reflection of that. I want to make that it very actually clear. does reflect it in um, the content it of the does. movie itself. Yeah, I mean, it does. <laughs> and, and so I think it's less, it's less a frustration with the film and more a frustration of why the film can't be more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's on, so I, I can't say I hate the film, but I don't say, I don't think I love it the same way because I wish for more <laughs> from feminist cinema. And I know that filmmakers are, are capable of doing it mostly in the independent realm because there's less, people that use less money. So there's less people with opinions on what you can do in a film. So I, I, I think I'm very grateful that she was bold as bold as she could be um, given the circumstances. But on the other side, just as Gerwig as an artist, 
I only really like Frances Ha, <laughs> which is her first, you know, collaboration with, with uh, Noah Bombach. And I think it's because the Bombachism is really st- stuck in that one. Um, I really don't like Lady Bird. I think oh, no. Gerwig and I would not get along. That's an ob- subjective opinion on why I don't think her films resonate with me. And I think it's very personal. And I don't want anyone to think I am making a grand statement of her as an artist because I think she resonates with so many people that is 100% a singular response I have. But I also love that she is, I think, one of two millennial aged, she's, I think, a year or two older than me, directors that people know by name. Because so few people know uh, filmmakers by name. Even in Gen X, there's only a handful, like Nolan, Tarantino, what have you, right? Like, as the generations go by, there's less and less, we're going to go see a Wurtmuller film, right? Like, people don't think that way anymore. Gerwig is one, and I think Jordan Peele is one, and Barry Jenkins, who was like a straddle Gen X millennial, I don't, he's like in the middle there. He, he could claim either generation. That's about it, right? And I love that for her. And I love that we have that. I think millennial cinema has like been, like we don't have a millennial cinema. We're starting to, but we don't have like millennial directors who are like, ah, this is this is a director. And I, I love that she has been able to take that mantle and be a director for this generation. Not that she speaks for the whole generation, but just that the generation has a, like a marquee name director it took like it shouldn't we shouldn't be in our like almost 40s by the time we had one you know what i mean like gen x had um probably 10 directors in the 90s where you you would go and see that movie what other millennial directors can you really name not really so i love that what you were saying about Barbie as a, a feminist work, I mean, it, I, I, yeah, it's it's all spot on in the way I kind of wrap my mind around it when we were deep in the discourses. Like, this is not Sarah Polly's Barbie. Would I would I love to see Sarah Polly's Barbie? Of course, It'd be fascinating. I would I would yeah. learn a ton from Sarah Polly's Barbie. And I think to your point, some people were acting like Barbie was, um, and yes, so it got a little inflated that in that annoying. sense. But but I also am you know where it sounds like you ended up. I'm not necessarily holding that against the film itself. Like for exactly for what it was able to set out to do, um, I, I thought it was pretty impressive feat. And I do love I do love the world, the girly world she created. How how bright and pink and bubbly and unapologetically pink it was. I think a lot of films are afraid to do that because it's too girly or whatever and she had all the men in the hot pink and i i love that she really went for that that barbie pink i I, and i I don't know if that story is true or not that they like took all the pink paint from the entire world or whatever but i would like to think that's true because that's a great story (laughs) you know what's next they've been conjoined all year long who are we to separate them hello adam and josh this is ryan mcquade the executive editor over at awardswatch.com 2023 was another fantastic year of films exploring profound ideas like marriage, self-identity, death, love, the future, and the past. Movies like The Zone of Interest, Past Lives, May, December, The Taste of Things, Killers of the Flower Moon, All the Strangers, All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt, and The Boy and the Heron tackled one or more of these ideas. But there was one film in 2023 that hit them all and stuck with me the most, thus became the only film I saw six times within a calendar year, which is something I rarely do, 
and broke my rule of giving a five-star letterbox grade to a film within its current year. And that film is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. The Russians have a bomb. We're supposed to be years ahead of them, but... What were you guys doing in Los Alamos? And how many people were in these uh, open discussions? Too many compartmentalization was supposed to be the protocol. We were in a race against the Nazis. So now the race is against the Soviets. Not unless we started. Robert, they just fired the starting gun. Sure. It's very easy to pick one of the two films that was part of a global phenomenon. But Nolan's film feels like it's something special and something that he's been building towards his entire celebrated career. And with this current achievement, he's made his most vital film to date. At its inception, Nolan became fascinated with the idea of Oppenheimer and his group of scientists creating something that had the slight possibility of blowing up the world. And with this informative seed of doubt and curiosity that sprung us all living in a nuclear world, Nolan constructed a profound and at times bone-chilling three-hour epic that rivals the great epics that we've all come to love. Oppenheimer is beyond astonishing, and by all means, I'm not a Nolan bro or stand for him whatsoever, but I guess there's far worse things you could be in this world if he's going to continue to make outstanding movies like this in the future. Hope you guys are doing well and having a great 2023, and have a happy 2024. Thank you, Ryan. See, that kind of goes back to what I was saying off the top about chalk picks. You've got Ryan acknowledging the pick may seem a little boring. Our next voicemailer is going to apologize a little bit, but none of us have anything to apologize for because, yeah, Oppenheimer is one of the best films of the year. And as A.A. Dowd wrote recently for Digital Trends, Oppenheimer was the movie of 2023, regardless of where you put it on your list. This is what A.A. Dowd wrote, a dazzling cerebral spectacle that views the dark legacy of its subject, the so-called father of the atomic bomb, as a chain reaction of political, philosophical, and existential consequences. But even with the question of its artistic merit set aside, Oppenheimer still looms impossibly large over the year in cinema. Nothing else achieves such a perfect fusion of multiplex popularity, rapturous acclaim, and mass cultural curiosity. No, not even Barbie. The chipper, brightly colored yin to Oppenheimer's depressive, muted yang. And it is those political, philosophical, and existential consequences that that Nolan explores and that what, what drew me in, the irreconcilable, infuses every aspect of the film. Go back to the first teaching scene with Oppenheimer. Uh, Lomanitz, I think, is his, his lone student at the time. And he says, what do you know about quantum mechanics? He says, I have a grasp on the basics. And Oppenheimer says, then you're doing it wrong. Is light made up of particles or waves? It's both. How can it be both? It can't, but it is. It's paradoxical. And yet it works is his line. Paradoxical, like believing the only way to stop more bloodshed is by creating and detonating a bomb that will cause more bloodshed than any weapon humanity has previously devised. Like believing you're you're saving humanity while at the same time likely giving it the tools to destroy itself. That great Einstein scene where he says to him, Einstein says to Oppenheimer, here we are lost in your quantum world of probabilities and needing certainty. Just in case I haven't packaged this clearly enough, take out the word quantum and that single line could be 
the line of my list. It could be applied to Elizabeth in May-December. It could be applied to Daniel in Anatomy of a Fall. What strikes me about zone of interest in this context is the cruel, unwavering certainty of the Nazis. And this film and the construct it takes to explore all of that, Nolan literally turns it into an inquiry. It's an inquiry of these problems and paradoxes and the man and, and the men behind it. And I love it. And the more I thought about it, I did think it was the film of the year. It may not be my number one, but I had it at number three for a very long time, you guys. And I eventually decided before sitting down to record with you that it just needed to be one slot higher. And there it is at number two for me. And Michael, I at least have your support. I know Josh liked it as well, but Good film. didn't didn't find room for it in his top 10. You did make room for it. I did. And, and uh, just briefly, I came out of there not really knowing. We were chained at the Tribune with this issue of star ratings, right? So, you know, I came out and I thought, Okay, where am I? You know, and I was I was at three and a quarter. Strong recommendation for me. Other people, you know, I think, you know, that would that would be that would seem dismissive. And, and I I wrote my way through it, and I thought, okay, even with all my problems with it, it's it's a it's a three and a half. And I I don't even want to talk about you know like star ratings. It's nonsense. But but that's where it was, and that is a film I saw three or four times on stories. I was, I was kind of format crazy on that project because, you know, I was determined to see the thing in real IMAX, which meant I had to leave Illinois and go to either Michigan or Indiana to do so and drive down to Indianapolis at, you know, leaving at 4 a.m. to see the 11 o'clock and the thing breaks down for the first time in the whole run. So I was like, okay, that was a wasted trip. So I, and I was so, I was just angry. You know, I thought, I thought I'm going back. And I went back Friday and was working and anyway, Good to see that. Good to see it on real film at the music box at some point, you know. And, you know, saw it three times. And then I got, you know, it made me think, you know, to do this job properly, <laughs> to write about film, you should probably see anything that's got, you know, wildly inspired sequences followed by some really kind of conventional mistakes, followed by, you know, some – I'm not really sure about the structure where – they equate the uh, uh, the dramatic weight of what the Robert Downey Jr. character is going through in the final third to, well, kind of his moral comeuppance, among other things. But it, it, it's I think that slightly imbalances the movie, and it doesn't really, even though Downey's really good in it, um, I'm not sure all that really lands. And I also think there's a paradox at the heart of it that I'm not quite resolved on in that that, that movie actually has just as much flat out showbiz in it as Barbie. It's, I mean, I mean, not just because of the Trinity uh, bomb testing sequence, which is a stunner, but it just, you know, the, the propulsive editing that, that goddamn musical score that never shuts up, which I do not like. Uh, there's just a lot that's absolutely designed to give you this nerve wracking feeling of, of, uh, an unstoppable force. Um, I don't love all that and I don't love all the shamelessness of it. Uh, but I do love an awful lot of it because it's, cause it is serious. It's, uh, it, it is a remarkable achievement to get people to kind of really puzzle through it and, and, and reckon with the fallout, the literal and, and, and eternal symbolic fallout of what happened with that bomb in Japan. Uh, and, and it's, it's absolutely one of Nolan's best works, but Anyway, I, I I do love it, and I, I've kind of as I go older, as I get older, I think I, I give up more and more of the idea of like what what deserves my 
my closest attention and praise, whatever that's worth. It's not, it's not perfection. It's just a matter of like risks taken mm-hmm. percentages, maybe about how many of them come off. But, you know, I don't think Oppenheimer or Barbie or Killers of the Flower Moon or a lot of other films are any, anything like neat and tidy, flawless, anything. I, I just, I, I don't, I don't give any points for that. Um, anyway, so that's, that's some of what mm-hmm. I thought about, but yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm a big fan. It is on my list. And yet I started out at kind of a you know, three and a half, eh, pretty good, pretty good. And then, you know, through, through all the, the, the good fortune of all these different, um, reviewings under different circumstances, just different enough. Uh, I, I got, I got different ideas about it. My my mom is obsessed with this movie. The, my mom does not watch new movies anymore. She has like she can't sit for very long. Um, she sat through this whole movie, and every time I talk to her on the phone, she talks about Killian Murphy. She's like, mm. "Do you know that he made him lose all this weight?" Like she's so concerned about Killian Murphy's well being. She loves. <laughs> is this he movie, eating enough? So is I he eating enough now? Is he eating enough? <laughs> I don't know, but I, she loves this kind of movie, so I'm not shocked. This is like her favorite movie is like Zulu, and she loves um, Mantering Candidate. Like she loves this kind of this kind of movie, but she doesn't see mo- new movies anymore. So I was really impressed. If no one's listening, you got my mom into a theater. She sat for the whole thing, and she can't stop talking about this movie. She just loves it so much. I actually quite liked it. I liked the moral ambiguity. I liked that it was not propping up Oppenheimer as an unsaleable genius. It really makes you think, wow, this guy's actually ethically murky. Even if he went through things that were also ethically murky, I think he was also ethically murky. And the film knows that. I don't know that the women are as well formed as they maybe could be. But I I do love that... um, this was on, I think, Deacon's podcast where the production designer talked about how they cut a whole day of filming so they could have the budget to actually film in Berkeley. And I noticed that because I turned to Robert and I was like, go Bears, because whenever there's Berkeley related, I say go Bears because I went to Berkeley and that's what you do if you went to Berkeley. And I would have noticed if it wasn't Berkeley because Berkeley has very specific buildings, especially those old ones, that uh, the science buildings. And I loved that he knew it was important to get that accuracy and took it upon himself to figure out how to find the budget, not go over budget, which I feel like a lot of people would have been like, I'm Christopher Nolan. I can go over budget. No, he found the budget and made it work. I think that's very impressive as a director, as an economist, as a person who loves Berkeley. <laughs> um, I, that's my take on Oppenheimer. <laughs> Adam, I, I have something to offer you since I know you're you know disappointed in me for not putting this on my top ten. Though, but like not Mariah, surprised. good film, good film, very good film. I, I I think Michael spoke to some of the maybe hesitations I had about it, but I want to give you this from Joel Mayward. I saw this just cross uh, on Letterbox not too long ago, and Joel is a professor at George Fox University. I I have the pleasure of editing some of his writing for Think Christian, but he said what Amadeus is for art. Oppenheimer is for science. And mm-hmm. I feel like he he might have been writing yeah. that for you. He may have, because I do love both films. And it sounds like I'm the only one who really loves the the fission and fusion approach and the the color and black and white, the split of that, the separate storylines, the way they all still revolve ultimately around Oppenheimer and that inquiry into his motives and the the psychological fallout of it mm-hmm. and just the the political all that all that maneuvering but it still comes down to some of these central questions about trying to make sense of the the scale 
of what was achieved mm. and, and, and the horror of that as well. So it turns out I, I've got some more backing here. We do have another special guest. And, 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 my, and my mom. And, and, and your mom. <laughs> Don't which I will take. Mom. I'll take. It's, it's her number one movie would, of the year. Would she like to co-host a podcast with me? <laughs> <laughs> she probably would. Yeah. She could talk for three hours. <laughs> we do have we do have one more vote for Oppenheimer from another guest. Low Film Spotting Nation, Chris Klimek in Washington, D.C. I hate to be so basic, but my movie of 2023 is Oppenheimer. I think this was Christopher Nolan's Grand Budapest Hotel, by which I mean it's the movie where an auteur who is already very much a known quantity, finally went over his detractors. Oppenheimer is a fascinating hybrid of suspense thriller and memory play and character study. It dodges most of the biopic traps. And Nolan manages to make a movie that's three hours of mostly people talking in rooms, kinetic and cinematic. And the fact that it was such an unlikely hit gives me faith that art and commerce need not always be enemies. Please check out the Smithsonian Magazine podcast I began hosting this year. The show is called There's More to That. I'd specifically direct film spotters to our Oppenheimer episode, which looked at some of the screen depictions of this very complex man that preceded the big Nolan opus, uh, including a 40s propaganda film where Oppenheimer played himself. Not quite as convincingly as Killian Murphy, in my opinion. Also, our Killers of the Flower Moon episode featured an in-depth interview with Jim Gray, the former Osage chief. Chief Gray was one of the tribal leaders who persuaded Martin Scorsese to rewrite the initial screenplay of that film so that it would contain what Chief Gray called the Osage cosmology, rather than just the, the facts of the case as reported in David Grant's nonfiction book. So please check that out. And thank you, Film Spotting, for being such an inspiration to all the podcasters like me who've followed in your footsteps. Happy holidays, guys. Thank you to Chris, a regular here with our end of year voicemail, some additional listening, a little bit of homework, but it sounds like fun homework from Chris Klemek. Oppenheimer is available VOD. One more consensus title we have to get to before the big reveal of our very favorite films of the year. Yeah, we've talked about all these movies and we're going to say this one too coming up. And yet we haven't even gotten to our individual number ones. Let's start it with back-to-back voicemails from two longtime show partners. Hi, Film Spotting. This is Matt Singer, former Film Spotting SVU host, current screen crush critic and author of Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. My number one movie of the year this year is Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese. And I think what I love about it is that on the one hand, it is totally recognizable as a Martin Scorsese movie in terms of the cast, the themes, its ideas about greed and power and corruption. And on the other hand, it's Scorsese, now 80 years old, not just rehashing himself. He's exploring new genres and new techniques and new chapters in history. And uh, that ending, uh, to me, definitely the most uh, thoughtful, most powerful ending of any movie I saw uh, this year. So thanks again. Thanks for another great year of podcasts. And I'm wishing everyone... A good 2024. Thanks, guys. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. They're like buzzards circling our people. We're still warriors. Hi, 
I film spotting, Keith Phipps of uh, The Reveal and various other publications and the Next Picture Show podcast. Um, my favorite uh, film of the year is not a huge surprise. And I'm sure it's not the only one. I'm not the only one choosing it. It's Killers of the Flower Moon, which is uh, a sweeping Martin Scorsese masterpiece about a specific horrible incident in American history, but also uh, some of the larger issues surrounding it. It features great performances from De Niro and DiCaprio and Willie Gadsden and a lot of other uh, great supporting players. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's it's my movie of the year and a, my movie of the year and a very good movie year. Thanks so much for listening to this show and ours, and we'll see you in 2024. Consensus picks, that phrase makes it sound like you just kind of shrug your way into it. I do not feel shruggy about Killers of the Flower Moon. This is Scorsese's 26th feature, I believe, not counting documentaries or concert films. And a movie that I think was absolutely saved from itself by a crucial pre-production rewrite and recasting. The book by David Gran, the nonfiction account, which is terrific, by the way, very different, keeps the extent and the manipulators behind the murders of the wealthy Osage Nation tribe members keeps it a secret. And it's largely the book that is about the newly formed FBI and one agent in particular, and how he and others nailed the great white father of this story of this Oklahoma region, William Hale and his nephew, Ernest Burkhart, for their role in all the killings. That rewrite, that screenplay rewrite, and Scorsese's late breaking interest in getting more of the story, not quite enough, but more, told from the Osage points of view, especially from Molly Burkhart, Ernest's wife, that's what saved, for me, Killers of the Flower Moon from being just another Mississippi burning. And in fact, it doesn't go far enough, which is why no matter how damn good Lily Gladstone is as Molly, she's amplifying a role that is just somewhat backgrounded in the second half of the movie when it shouldn't be, while the story details more and more of the dirty work done by De Niro as Hale and Leonardo DiCaprio, who was originally supposed to play the FBI agent Tom White. He plays Ernest. Shows itself to you that Bill Smith didn't take the proper care of Minnie the way he could have. To have her sick and die, take her head rights, and her land. That oil which should go to her sisters, your wife. Well, he's taking money that by rights should go to Molly. My mother, Lizzie. She's not in good shape. She won't last. Most Osage don't live past 50. When these women die, with how Osage suffer from illness, you have to make it the head rights come to you. You see? This film, like Oppenheimer, maybe just in terms of my personal extremes with what I loved about it and what I had some issues with, it's one of Scorsese's very best, and I say that as someone who has substantial resistance to a lot of Scorsese's best-known films, Gangs in New York, Shutter Island. You know, someday I'll, I'll reacquaint myself in an earnest, open-hearted way and see what I missed. Um, for me, Killers of the Flower Moon is about three, maybe four-fifths of a truly great American epic, very unusual quality, very unusual rhythm, very little BS, a very grave and serious film, but not a dull one ever. I'd see it a third time for the first 15 minutes or the last 15 minutes alone. And to me, that's the hallmark of a director who does not stop thinking and trying and taking chances. I wish the whole movie were filmed like a silent film, to be honest. I loved what he did with that silent right? film newsreel. A lot of people thought it was a real newsreel. And I that's was how, like, no, that's how good it is. just being a that's nerd. That's how good it is. Like, it's beautifully made, and the and the, the radio play too. Those those two sequences were my favorite sequences, and I agree that I think it is some of the most 
playful and skillful filmmaking of his entire career. I just wish the whole movie were as good as those two sequences. And then I would be much more than like mid on the film. I also think that putting Lily in the background for the last half of the film, I kind of understand why, but I also, I'm like, there could have been a way exactly. to, there, there, there had to have been like one more rewrite yep. and you could have, you had, you have like the, one of the top working actresses. I know she's unknown to a lot of people cause she hasn't purposefully hasn't broken out, but like you, there's no, there's no denying her talent. And I'm like, just one more rewrite and you would have had it. I feel yep. like that's, hmm. that's why that's my resistance on this one is one more rewrite and you would have had it. There's some incredible sequences in Killers of the Flower Moon. We spent a lot of time on some of those sequences, Josh, in our review. And it's why I have this film. It's part of why. It's part of the reason why I have the film all the way up at number three on my list. Michael, you have it at number two. And without contradicting or or trying to rebut anything you're saying, Mariah, I do think for me, one of the things that stands out, and you mentioned the the radio play aspect. We'll, we'll just kind of leave it there for people who haven't seen the movie yet. I do at least think through that element and other aspects of the film, we see the storyteller's recognition of the inability to capture the full scope of tragedy and the full scope of the corruption and greed mm-hmm. of this story and the futility of a white man, a white storyteller to capture and portray that and and really wrap your head around the oppression of the Osage that that really happened and that we do see in the film. Again, regardless of where you fall ultimately on some of those storytelling choices, I think I think it's hard not to say that Scorsese is is reckoning with it in a in a really thoughtful way. And I think I think you see it throughout, but with that coda and that postscript especially that forces us to consider the Osage's legacy. Uh it's a film that we did talk about maybe longer, Josh, than any other new movie we've talked about in the show's history. It's one for me that, and this has only happened once so far with Killers of the Flower Moon, I really couldn't even talk about it without getting into spoilers and just trying to wrestle with everything Scorsese was doing and how it tied to a lot of other themes, as Matt Singer touched on in his other films, some of his best work. We just, we had to get into it. We had to get into the meat of it. And all that said, you still just got all those great idiosyncratic faces beyond the stars, all those great faces that populate the ensemble of this film. Prieto's cinematography, the Robbie Robertson score, which for me is otherworldly. And there's just a kinetic energy, not just to the score, but to the whole film. There's a propulsiveness tied inherently to its form. It just, it propels you forward. It propels you to confront the depths of the injustices committed against the Osage. For me, at year's end, especially thinking about Killers of the Flower Moon, it seems so crucial for where we're at. I mean, we're we're literally in an era of new book banning. And, you know, that's especially the case in the US for books, anything relating to the nation's history. That that's at all uncomfortable, right? And so the line of the film for me and a line of the year, I think, for some of these more important works we've been discussing is Molly's that she says at one point, have you told all the truths? And for me, one of the the movie's triumphs is that that makes so much sense in the immediacy of that scene between those two people. And it is, as I'm suggesting, a thesis statement for the movie as its own project 
And then for where we're at in the U.S. right now, have you told all the truths? I think this is a movie for whatever flaws uh, you might think it has, um, is forcing that question upon us and how encouraging that it has been received as not only by audiences, by critics, and is that question is being considered. It's having to be reckoned with because someone like Scorsese made a film like this now. One more pick before we move on for Killers of the Flower Moon. Hi, Film Spotting Pod. This is Veronica Phillips. I have the distinct pleasure of being a PA for you guys. My favorite film of 2023 was Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which I admittedly expected to be the case since the beginning of the year. I feel that this film is in many senses a retrospective of what Scorsese has grappled with throughout his whole cinematic career, particularly in his reflections on greed, violence, and the capacity to find love, even in the face of immense brutality. If you'd like to read any of my film writing, criticism, I am a staff writer over at filmdays.net. You can actually find my full review of Killers of the Flower Moon over there. And all freelance work I have is posted on my Twitter, which is at vnicky, V-N-I-C-K-Y-Y. Thank you to our great PA, Veronica Phillips. Killers of the Flower Moon is available. VOD, still to come. Golden Brick finalists, outlier picks, and finally, our number one films of the year. First, a couple of ways you can help the show, whether you've been listening for a decade or more or you're just getting to know us. Would you take a minute and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Every new rating or review helps us reach new listeners. Another way to support us, join the Film Spotting family. We would like to take a moment to welcome a new Film Spotting family member, Miles Johnson in Lafarge, Wisconsin. Michael, you know where Lafarge is located? No, but I'm about to find out. Do you do you know? I have no idea. Oh my god! I'm just gonna I'm just gonna believe it's a real place. Miles is a new Family Plus member. That means he has access to every episode in our archive, plus monthly bonus shows. He tells us that a couple of early reviews that kept him listening. This is interesting, Josh. Were our conversations about Julia Ducourneau's Titan and Alex Garland's Men, along with our sight and sound marathon review of Tarkovsky's Mirror. What I love about that is both Titan and Men were movies. I was. I was mixed on. We had really good discussions about him, but I was mixed on them. And and this is a case where he he singles out two movies that it wasn't necessarily a love fest. You know? Yeah. Well, must have been a good conversation. Welcome, Miles. We also wanted to share four of Miles' current favorites. Maybe we can play a fun game since we've got four of us here. We each can fight for one of these. So <laughs> so th- these are what Miles has are his favorites right now. Alex Garland's Annihilation, Mulholland Drive. Isao Takahata's Only Yesterday, and then Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Since this is my my game, I'm grabbing Eyes Wide Shut right away. Sorry, off the table. Um, Mulholland, Maya? Mulholland for me. No, Mulholland. no, I got to oh. No, I got to go. I, I got to claim the age thing. You beat me. The age thing. Chaos. I'm the age thing. Uh, Seventeen. Michael years. has Mulholland, and <laughs> I think it's only right, Adam, that I know I didn't do this, but we let our other guests take the next pick. I agree. I haven't seen the other two films. Really? Okay. So. Well, I. <laughs> yeah. This is this is the rare case where I have Mariah beat. I've seen both of them, and I like Only Yesterday, but I do think I like Garland's Annihilation more, and I like it more than his recent film Men. So yeah, the four current letterboxed favorites for Miles, uh, a favorite. We did the little film spotting five with him. He recently revisited Park Chanuk's Old Boy that was re-released, a film, a random film or filmmaker he loves, Paul Schrader and Schrader's Master Gardener. 
from this year, and then three movies he credits with becoming a cinephile. He says, I was really obsessed with these three in my budding high school cinephile days. Not sure which came first, Eraserhead, Trainspotting, and A Clockwork Orange. Those those seem like movies that might have ushered in a lot of cinephiles. Can back I take Eraserhead? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I actually yeah, have here. seen Eraserhead like 30 <laughs> times. Okay. I love it's yours. Head. It's all yours. Okay. Welcome to Miles. <laughs> you can join Miles and listen early and ad free. Also get a weekly newsletter and access to monthly bonus shows. I believe, Adam, we just had a bonus show just dropped. dropped today, right? Uh, we did more best of 2023 talk by delving into some of the other categories in our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots. Also a benefit of being a member of the Film Spotting family if you choose complete access to the archives. That's all at filmspottingfamily.com. Yeah, as as gifts for participating, Michael and Mariah get their own subscription to the Film Spotting family. It, it's what brings them back year after year. Wow. Yeah. Generous. Just keep renewing it. Actually, can I just say one thing? While you guys were talking uh, there, I, I, I prepared a little uh, presentation on Lafarge, but I'm, only, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it now, but it is halfway, <laughs> okay. roughly halfway between, I think, between lacrosse and Wisconsin Dells. That's all I wanted to say. I think Good we have um, January's bonus geography, Wisconsin geography with Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Something we like to do on these best of the year shows is to highlight the best movie scores of the year. Back when we used to do it as two shows and we had a bunch of different breaks, we would actually play some of those scores. We're still going to bring back that expert. We would always hear picks from Sam Smith, a longtime friend of the show. He's an artist, designs many covers for the Criterion Collection. He's a musician. He's the former host of the OST podcast about the sounds and songs of movies. And he is going to share with you now his choices for the very best movie music of 23. Hey, film spotting Sam Smith here, a.k.a. Sam Smith, poster designer and former host of the soundtrack radio show OST with some of my favorite film music of the year. So Christopher Barron, Daniel Rosen for Past Lives, a beautiful, dreamy score. Anthony Willis doing some great work on Saltburn, Naoki Sato for Godzilla Minus One, and of course Ludwig Göransson for Oppenheimer. An interesting one is May-December. Composer Marcelo Zarvos actually took an existing film score by the great Michel Legrand for a film called The Go-Between and repurposed it or copied it exactly for this movie. So it's actually ineligible for the Oscar for that reason, but a great film music uh, moment from this year. And then you have two scores by Japanese composing legends, the late great Ryoichi Sakamoto, who did his last film music for Koreeda's Monster, and in my opinion, the goat, Joe Hisaishi, for Miyazaki's How Do You Live, a.k.a. The Boy and the Heron. A couple others that stood out to me were uh, an artist by Quest making a really fun and unique score for Rye Lane, which may be a Golden Brick contender, if not... It should be. Uh, Nicholas Bratel for Carmen. This is a score that you feel like you've been listening to for years. It's that iconic and memorable. Uh, Michael Levy, again, doing some haunting and very interesting work uh, for Jonathan Glazer with The Zone of Interest, my favorite film of the year, so far at least. 
and Jerskin Hendricks for Poor Things. This is a very atonal and dissonant score at times, but there's this one theme introduced halfway through, and you kind of hear it building, and you're waiting for him to give you that full, just orchestrated, just big version of this theme that's just going to knock you on the ground. And at the last scene, he does it, and it is exactly what you want in a soundtrack. It is just wonderful. Best use of a song not in Barbie, that is. Um, you have to give it to Pimp from the Bacow Rhythm and Steel Band, as used so memorably in Anatomy of a Fall. That's it. And you can find archives of my show OST at mixcloud.com slash OSTFM. Thanks, guys. Hey there, Film Spotting. Sam Van Hallgren here, Film Spotting producer, calling in with my favorite film of 2023. Well, you know, my favorite film of 2023 is Asteroid City. Maybe my favorite film of the last 10 years. It made me giddy. I loved it so much. But there's a film that was not going to come up on this week's show unless I called in. It's my number two film of the year, and it's Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things. Now, Life is hard in Yorgos Lanthimos's films. They are dark and depraved and twisted and absurd. They are also, thankfully, very, very funny, never more so than in this film. And it takes enormous resources of imagination and sacrifice to experience any kind of personal liberation, I'd say. In Lanthimos's films, I think of uh, of Dogtooth, his very earliest film. But with Poor Things, I think we have a story that's not just about personal liberation. I do think that it's Lanthimos's effort and all his collaborators' effort. Of course, it's an adaptation of a novel to imagine uh, an entirely reoriented relationship with society, uh, stripped of Judeo-Christian morality, social conformity, and uh, the way he does this with Emma Stone's Bella Baxter is extraordinarily inventive and funny, and the performances of Stone and Ruffalo Defoe are some of my favorite of the year. Uh, It is also kind of X-rated Barbie, which makes it fun in this year of Barbie. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for a great year of movies. Come on, Sam, let's not scare the people away. Poor Things isn't X-rated Barbie, it's just R-rated Barbie. We get back into our conversation about the best films of 2023 with some poll results. Michael and Mariah will rejoin us shortly. Back in early December, we asked listeners, what is the film of the year? Now, the seven options we gave them were indeed some of the best films of the year at that point, several of which we did talk about in the last segment. But the landscape of great movies has changed pretty dramatically since the beginning of the month. Let's see how it played out, Josh. We gave them these options. Across the Spider-Verse, Anatomy of a Fall, Asteroid City, Barbie, 
Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, or you could write in your own choice and go with other. How did it come out, Josh? We have four stacked pretty much at the bottom here. Asteroid City, 6%. Anatomy of a Fall, 7%. Barbie, 8%. Across the Spider-Verse, 9%. Jumping up a bit, Killers of the Flower Moon received 13% of the vote. Past Lives, holding strong, 18% of the vote there. And speaking to the diversity, the great diversity of good movies this year, Other came in second place with 19% of the vote. Some of the popular other write-ins here, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, and Ira Sachs' Passages. But taking the poll with 20% of the vote, listener's choice for their favorite film of the year is Oppenheimer. KP Franklin writes, my vote is going to be other because Bo is afraid has changed the way I view cinema. Three hours of nonstop anxiety and horror. Bo is afraid never lets you breathe nor gives you any help in keeping up with the plot. With a central performance from Joaquin Phoenix, the best living actor in my opinion, and a plethora of Easter eggs from Ari Aster, one of the most unpredictable directors today, it feels like a Russian nesting doll with multiple layers, each one more rewarding than the last. It's insane, hilarious, depressing, and most of all misunderstood. Aster himself has voiced his frustrations with people writing it off as this or that, while more than half of his clues and Easter eggs have yet to be discovered. The absurdity and over-the-top world-building will likely alienate Oscar voters, but I think we will be talking about Bo's Afraid until the end of time. Bo's Afraid, available VOD. Are you eager to dive back into that world, Josh? Wow. Well, at first, the way KP started, I thought he was going to say it changed the way he viewed cinema because he's never going to see a film again, any other right. film. <laughs> and I didn't dislike Bo's Afraid. I, know. I, I, actually, I, I actually was a fan. Yeah, I was less of a fan. Misunderstood is probably fair and it seems like Aster may have intended for some misunderstanding but I think we gave it a fair shake here on the show. We also got a comment from Jeff Light. This has been a great year in film and so many strong contenders are just coming out now and while Oppenheimer remains the best pure cinema film I've seen this year in terms of my best experience in the cinema I want to give my vote to other for Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, adapting something that so many people are so passionate about and still making it a great movie experience for a general audience is such a tightrope walk, as the many failed previous attempts can attest. This film was so funny, so creative, and really got very little credit for it. People say they're tired of the same sequels and franchises, but here was something very well done and pretty different, and not enough attention was paid. We're going to get blockbusters every year, like it or not, film snobs, and I would love for more of them to be like this instead of the alternative. I'm with you, Jeff. Yeah. One of the highlights yeah, of the I movie year. Yeah, it's a fun movie. And as blockbusters or action entertainment goes, very watchable, currently available to stream on Prime Video, Paramount Plus, I think, as well as other VOD options. Here's Andy Bucati in KC. Vim Vendors has made some great films, but I think his best is Perfect Days. A beautiful blend of poetic cinematography and subtle profundity matched with the perfect actor in Koji Akusho. I could also make a viable case for every film mentioned in the poll, as well as The Taste of Things, the best movie I've ever seen about and involving food, Blackberry, The Holdovers, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and Joyride, and there are still a few great ones to come. 2023 truly has been a banner year for film. Wow. Andy, just, you know, making it hurt that Perfect Days was the next one on my to-watch list 
Really? Before, yeah, before, you know, recording deadlines, voting deadlines, jury duty. Have I mentioned yet that jury duty screwed up? <laughs> you mentioned it to end, me. <laughs> my year-end viewing. Uh, I have not gotten to perfect days yet. I'm going to have to wait uh, with others. I don't think it has a current U.S. release date, actually, but should be coming in 2024. One more comment here from Jared Young in Ottawa. In a year that was defined by the catastrophic failure of blockbuster sequels, lifeless reboots, and incomprehensible CGI spectacle, how can I not vote for the movie that swept in at the last minute and reversed all those trends? I'm talking, of course, about Godzilla Minus One, the exhilarating monster movie that is somehow also a bittersweet Coriata film? There was a lot of great stuff this year, Killers of the Flower Moon, Barbie, The Holdovers, etc., but you kind of expect that stuff to be great. So I have to go with the movie that surprised me the most and had me, a grown man, marching across the parking lot outside the theater, pumping my fists and humming the Godzilla theme. <laughs> well, I think this movie might come up a bit later here in the show, but suffice it to say, we're both fans of Godzilla Minus One. I want video, people Jared. should check out. Video of yeah. you marching across the parking lot. I want to see him pumping his fists. You've heard us talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, and now you can win yourself a copy of it. Directed by Martin Scorsese, Killers is now available on digital. Lily Gladstone, alongside Academy Award winners Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, give powerful performances in this riveting film based on a true story. For your chance to win your own copy of Killers of the Flower Moon on digital, send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. Subject line, Flower Moon contest and in the body it's pretty easy well it may be a challenge but it won't take you long to write it give us your favorite scorsese film from every decade 70s through the 2010s mm. that's all you got to give us is a title from each decade i Josh. like that i, I like I that as too. a potential future bonus episode or yeah. or even favorite scorsese decade did we do that i think we did that with spielberg we did See, that was it. I thought for a second, surely we did Scorsese, but it was Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've done Scorsese yet, but it's been on that list of potential top fives for a while. There you go. Adam, Josh, it's Amy Nicholson from Unspooled. Very excited to chime in on a year of what to me just felt like amazing fresh talent. People with their first films, second films, absolutely knocking it out of the park. I think Polite Society, American Fiction, Totem, They Clone Tyrone, the first four-fifths of Cat Person, I will say that. Um, but the film that I really wanted to shout out for this episode is Chloe DeMont's Fair Play uh, that starred, you know, Phoebe Dynavor, Alden Ehrenreich. This was just this wicked little erotic thriller about two financial analysts who work together in the same kind of brutal cutthroat office. They're secretly engaged in all hell breaks loose for the two of them. Um, this is just a movie about money and gender and power, about people who yell too much, about people who keep everything inside until they explode. Can I buy you another? Now that you're making more money than me? <laughs> oh. What are you doing? You know it's just a game. You play it very well. Are you gonna pitch me to Campbell? I don't think it's a good idea. We both can't keep working here. I'm not quitting. This firm has become my religion. You have become my God. You give me this opportunity, I will give you everything I got. This film just pulls such a marvelously little nasty trick on the audience. Like when I was watching this the first time and the second time, every single time, I've watched this multiple times, I found myself getting so invested, you know, like screaming at the screen invested and like 
Who's going to get the big promotion? Who's going to get the respect they deserve from the office? Can this couple who feels so genuinely in love at the start of the film stay genuinely in love? Can they get the success they want? And then thinking, hold on, these are the kind of people who are ruining the world. I should not be rooting for them at all. That is the great trick of this movie, and I cannot wait for everybody to get to catch up with it, because I think Chloe Dumont is a real talent. And by the way, I can't resist this. I got to squeeze this into your up. Let me do this. There is a lot of polarization on Saltburn out there, and I got to throw in my two cents. If people are watching Saltburn thinking that Emerald Fennel has to solve income inequality, no, 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 no. You're on the right track. She is a person making the kind of films like The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, The Magic Christian, stuff that is just having fun pointing out everything that's wrong with the world. And yes, she grew up rich and privileged, but she grew up surrounded by people even more rich, even more privileged. She knows the difference, and those are the people this movie is about. All right, you guys, take care. Michael and Mariah are back as we get set to announce our number one films of the year. Quick thanks to Amy Nicholson for that voicemail and a nice segue into a bit of business we do want to take care of first. Chloe DeMont's Fair Play, a movie that, Josh, I know we both need to see. Michael and Mariah just heard from you that you're both fans of this film. But at the beginning, she mentioned how good of a year this was for new filmmakers. She included titles like American Fiction, They Clone Tyrone, Polite Society, Cat Person. And of course, every year here on Film Spotting, we award our golden brick to the overlooked or underseen film of the year from a new or emerging filmmaker. We did we did pretty well last year. Charlotte Wells' After Sun, it just so happened that was my number one and your number one film of the year, Josh. Yeah, a, a special convergence that does not happen often, if at all. But I think I think After Sun was the right film for that to be the case. Other recent Golden Brick winners include Sound of Metal, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Minding the Gap, and Koganada's Columbus. There are a bunch of other titles, of course, we've been bestowing this award since 2009. Here's how we pick the winner. It's kind of a democratic thing. Sometimes, you know, Adam has to pull some strings if he's not happy with the results. How dare you? There's an investigation underway. Nope. No (laughs) shenanigans. I get a vote. Adam gets a vote. Producer Sam gets a vote. And then we invite our film spotting podcast family to vote as well. If you want those special privileges, go to filmspottingfamily.com. Michael and Mariah, you guys are both going to be voting in this and Next Picture Show hosts Keith, Tasha, Genevieve, and Scott weigh in. And then lastly, we give Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore votes as well in honor of Film Spotting SVU. And listeners, of course, listeners are involved as well. They get a vote. So a lot of input on the Golden Brick. Yes, you can vote in that listener brick poll right now at filmspotting.net. If it doesn't align with our group's final choice, well, then we have two winners. We have the overall winner and the listener's choice winner. We will tally up all the votes and announce the winner at our 2023 wrap party. It's going to be live in L.A. on Saturday, January 13th. More info and tickets available now at filmspotting.net. Not only will you hear... Some of our favorite scenes of the year. You're going to get that golden brick winner. You're also going to be there in person with Michael Phillips. Yes. I mean, it's it's Excited. just a question. We're, we're dying to get there. I mean, I'm I'm going to I'm trying to get the film deal and the recording contract and a tan and get the show done in 36 hours. It's going to be amazing. And you're going to drop by Cantor's and eat some pickles. For yes. Sure. Yes. Sure. Okay. We'll, right. you know, we'll bring some back for you. <laughs> I think that'll, that'll work. Here are your 2023 Golden Brick finalists. We have five films that to one degree or another meet our criteria of being made by new or new to us 
filmmakers and do also show some formal or narrative ambition. And, and yeah, we, we allow for some wiggle room there. Josh, our first finalist. That would be Skinamarink from director Kyle Edward Ball. Incidentally, also my number seven film of the year. I did nominate this uh, way back at the beginning of 2023 when this movie got a wide-ish release. Surprisingly, I think, considering uh, what it really is. Uh, it's basically, I mean, it's a horror movie. I think that's fair. I think that's accurate. Um, but it's really more of an experimental film. I, I've been describing it as, you know, imagine the Blair Witch Project if it had been simmered alongside Poltergeist in a pot of slow cinema. Mm. Somebody, <laughs> somebody on Letterboxd said like that they were impressed that this IFC Midnight got or Shutter, whoever it was, got um, odd, like thousands of people to go see what is essentially a ninety-minute Michael Snow movie in theaters. <laughs> and I was like, that's that was funny, many, but also I think really accurate. Many walkouts, including in the <laughs> showing I was at Skinamarink. If if that sounds great to you, and trust me, it really is. <laughs> It's on Hulu. It's also available VOD. Our next choice is one that I nominated and maybe not a surprise when I say that it's a London set comedy that evokes one of my all-time favorite films, a movie I think I put in my all-time sight and sound top 10 before Sunrise. The movie that we're nominating is Rye Lane from UK director Rain Allen Miller. It's a movie that features two strangers walking and talking, but Yes, it has a very different energy than the Linklater film. It debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in January. It arrived exclusively on Hulu not long after two very good lead performances from Vivian Opara and David Johnson. Again, that movie, Rye Lane, available on Hulu. Our next finalist is Theater Camp from directors Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman. And if producer Sam gets involved in any shenanigans, this one will right, likely take the prize. He loves it so much and I think has watched it approximately 6,000 times this year. We're kind of pushing the definition of formally ambitious, but, you know, we have a precedent for nominating improvised comedies. You could consider what we do in the shadows in that category, and that was a nominee in 2015. Theater Camp was like Rye Lane, another Sundance hit. Gordon also stars. Co-director Gordon stars alongside Ben Platt, Noah Galvin, and Jimmy Tatro. It got a limited release this summer before coming to digital in the fall. And Sam promises us, and Adam, you would agree, very, very funny. It is. It is very funny. I'm happy to see it on the list, and you can see it on Hulu and VOD. No, it, it's not It's not formally inventive or taking bold risks in the way our next film is, but I think still worthy of a nomination. That next film is Four Daughters from Tunisian director Kauter Benania. We did just review this movie a couple of weeks ago on the film, both very positive on Four Daughters. It's a documentary about a Tunisian family that features actresses playing two of the titular Four Daughters. They're missing, so the filmmaker casts to, to work alongside and recreating scenes from their lives together work alongside actual sisters and the mother. There's also an actress playing the mother in a lot of scenes. So some really nice meta layers to Four Daughters in a film that we do highly recommend. We do have one more film here that's up for the Golden Brick. Again, quick reminder, you can go to filmspotting.net now and vote for the one that's your choice. But the fifth finalist just so happens to be a movie, Mariah Gates. 
that you think is the very best, your number one film of the year? Yes, this is Raven Jackson's All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt. And uh, I just am so blown away by this film. I was hyped uh, right around this time last year when Sundance announced that it was programmed because her short film, Nettles, which is on Criterion Channel, is one of my all-time favorite short films. I've probably watched it a dozen times. It's formally really interesting, but also emotionally taps into like repressed childhood feelings in a way that I, it was hard to watch, but also like relevatory because it, it's one of those films that makes you feel like, Oh wow. Other people have felt the same way you have. Um, and you carry it with you and you don't know it's there. And then there it is on the screen. And I think she takes that same kind of emotional truth and expands it for, for 90, I think it's 90 minutes for all dirt roads, taste of salt. And she finds, unique what she calls slant rhymes in terms of match cuts kind of that are like visually matching but also emotionally matching moments in in this woman's life her name is mac played by three different actresses at different ages not too quick tiny little bit yeah slow take time I just I haven't seen anything like this film. I it was the very first 2023 film I saw. I saw it uh, pre-screening before Sundance, and I was like, "How is anything going to top this?" And then I saw it again at Chicago International Film Festival because it had been several months and it nothing had topped it. And I was like, "I need to watch it again just to make sure nothing." truly has topped it. And seeing it a second time, I was like, this is like, if she never makes another film, she's like Charles Lawton. She made a great film and that's it. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Like she, she doesn't need to make another film. I hope she makes another film obviously, but she's, she's made something I think singular to her vision, her voice. And it's a true collaboration too, with her, with the cast, with Jomo Frey, who was the cinematographer. It isn't just like her vision. It's her vision brought to life with this amazing, collaboration with artists who feel I think feel the world the same way she does it's a very tactile film it's visual but also sensual in and not in a neurotic sense and it just you feel the dirt you feel the clay you feel the mud you feel the the cicadas um as again as someone who grew up in a rural part of the world um it it felt like summertime where I grew up I grew up on a dirt road I did not grow up fishing my dad is not really a fisher person but um the way that the girls go through the world and climb trees and play in the water, it just very much reminded me of my own childhood. And it's fascinating to think that someone like Raven who grew up in, in rural Mississippi could have similar emotional, tactile childhood memories to someone who is decidedly nine, nine, none of those things and grew up in rural Northern California. There's a sequence in, I think the girl's car right before um, the girl's grandma's car, right before a funeral and you can almost smell the leather of the seats. And it felt like being in my friend Tiffany's grandma's car at her mm-hmm. grandfather's funeral. Like I felt like I had been in that same exact car. And I was like, how did she, mm-hmm. how did she do that? Like 
there's a lot of movies that make you go, how did she, how did they do this with really elaborate filmmaking? And in this one, it's more like, how did she, how did she bring these childhood memories like so viscerally to life? I don't, I yeah. still don't understand. I don't want to know. It's like <laughs> those Melies shorts where I, he's doing magic and I'm like, I don't know how he turned into a dragon. I love it. I feel the same way watching this film. I don't know how she did it. I don't want to know how she did it. I know that I feel it. And, and nothing made me feel like this movie all year. Yeah. You're, you're describing really well, the magic trick of the movie and, and all dirt roads, taste of salt. It's my number five of the year. I saw it at the Chicago international film festival. So relatively recently I had the same reaction, Mariah, and I have not, I don't have those personal connections you do to any sort of setting like this, but somehow this movie makes this woman's memories. They are so tactile in the ways you described it's like these memories become yours, even though you never had those experiences. Mm-hmm. You're you're feeling them as memories. They're that personal. And I just want to call out another moment. You have to talk about specific moments in this movie, right? Because it isn't there is not really a narrative. But Aisha Harris, actually, who we heard from earlier on Pop Culture Happy Hour, they were talking about some of their favorite things about this year. And she described uh, a hugging embrace scene that went on forever and forever. Right. But, but the one that I thought of, it's another embrace that, that hit me as well. There's a shot of Mac. And I believe at this point played by Charlene McClure, this is after her sister's wedding. So there's, she's standing at the door of the church, looking outside next to her father and they're watching the rain fall. They're sheltered Mm -hmm. and hard, really hard rain has been another recurring motif in this movie. Right. Um, Um, uh, The sound design is just so crucial to that. But this time, it's like one of those summer miracle moments where the rain is coming down hard, but you can see just beyond it to the sun, the sunny sky, right? And I love, to your point about the editing, the rhythmic slant editing, I think you said, where it's commenting on earlier moments. This moment is, it's a its a moment that's somewhat sad for her, but also joyous for her sister. And somehow choosing now to recall the hard rain but also bring in that moment of sunshine. And I don't know, this might last like 14 seconds, if that, but, but you feel that and you're like, oh, I, I, think, I, I think I was there. <laughs> it's impossible mm-hmm. that you were, of course, but it feels like you were once there. It's a beautiful film. I mean, I just missed my top 10 in the delicacy of feeling. And she, I mean, she's a real poet right out of the gate. And it's not, it's not a film that was only made in the editing and it wasn't a film that was necessarily reliant only on you know on on what was done in what are patently obviously real locations we haven't seen to death in you know in the rural south more than one state it's just a gorgeous kind of uh, tone poem you know and and yeah i can't wait to see it again yeah i'm i'm with you michael i agree i think it is a really beautiful film poetic evocative i wish this is on me i wish not only had i seen it in the theater like you Josh, but I wish that I had not caught up with it in the onslaught of end of year mm. cramming. I think that yeah, it's a very that, patient. Yeah, it, it didn't it didn't necessarily help my experience. And it's funny, I'm watching the first Mariah commented on fishing. I, I knew that you loved this film, and I'm like ten minutes in, and I'm thinking, what is it about Josh and fish heads? It's just a thing going back to Leviathan. I totally who knew. There's a, there's a, yeah, yeah. A long scene of how to, how to fillet the fish. Right. Yep. I will say I have in my past filleted a fish. I caught a trout and my friend taught me how to, how to 
do it and I never did it again. It was horrible, <laughs> but I have done that. I don't think you can grow up on a dirt road and not have somebody at some point take you fishing and make you gut the hmm. fish. It is like that is. A yeah. I wanted a fully an editor, but I did. That was too much work. And I, <laughs> there was a screening and, you know, it just didn't. Uh-huh. You know. Well, you know that you want to see this movie now, especially after hearing Mariah and Josh talk about it. And of course, you need to see it if you're going to vote for this year's film spotting Golden Brick. You will have your chance. The info we have is that it's scheduled for a digital release. It's probably still in some theaters currently around the country, but it's scheduled for a digital release on January 2nd. And that is plenty of time to watch it before you have to get your vote in. And going back to Four Daughters as well a film you should definitely see not available VOD as we're recording this, but by the time it's published, it seems that it will be out and available again, plenty of time to see both four daughters and Mariah's number one film of the year, alt dirt roads, taste of salt before you can vote for the golden brick. Let's get to your number one film of the year. Michael, maybe a surprise to some listeners that it hasn't come up yet, but they should be happy to see it all the way up in your top slot. It's a film that we will confess just missed being considered for the golden brick, even though it's eligible. It's a wonderful film, a wonderfully directed film by a first time filmmaker. We, we kind of thought it was just maybe a little bit too big, too big for the golden brick, but that's not what we're here to discuss. Michael, we want to hear your thoughts on Saline Song's film that is your number one film of the year. Past Lives, that's the film. And one of these years, I'm going to figure out why I tend to single out a smaller, quieter film, very often a first feature for my number one, instead of something thrilling and unruly and more openly problematic in some ways. Killers of the Flower Moon, or we talked about them all, Oppenheimer. But Saline Song's film, it was just one of those movies that, held me in a way I don't often experience. It really had me holding my breath. It's like, please, please don't screw it up. It's so good. Just keep keep to it. Don't don't settle for a, a resolution on the story that turns one of the three major characters into kind of an obvious antagonist suddenly just to make it easier and just to make it like every other damn movie I've seen this year, all of it. And it just didn't happen. And when I go back over my list about a lot of number ones, I'm, I am surprised. I look at films like... Nuri uh, Jalen's Climates back in 2006, a film that nobody saw in Turkey, let alone America. Um, you know, I, films like Capote, Bennett Miller's Capote, that was my number one this year. You know, Moonlight, no apologies for any of these. Spotlight, film like Past Lives, too small, too modest for some people. But this this story of 12-year-old uh, Nai Young, who uh, begins the story in Seoul, She's about to move with her family to Canada, farewell to her friend, and a sort of sweetheart. Sung is sad. It's awkward, entirely realistic for two 12-year-olds or so saying goodbye. Twelve years later, you follow this woman, now a young woman, as uh, these two people reconnect over this thing called Facebook. And Young, who now goes by Nora, is intrigued by what her old friend's life has been like and where it's going. Their, their kind of communication, all virtual now, separated by continents, is kind of a there's an edge to it. It's kind of a dangling modifier hanging over this possible reconnection. And then Nora at a writer's retreat on Long Island meets Arthur, another writer, American born. They fall in love and begin a kind of a green card marriage in New York City. Another decade passes. That's the third section. This is all very simply laid out. And we see what happens when Isung visits Nora and nominally her husband in New York. That's the outline and how the actors fill all that in makes it a beautiful somewhat melancholy, but I think kind of a hopeful experience 
at least in how it played for me. Greta Lee as Nora, supported by Yo and John Majaro as the past and present men in her life. That charged stillness of the last couple minutes on the sidewalk. I just loved it. And and I, I, I guess I just don't see that many films that make me feel like you're dealing with human decency on some level that isn't in a way that's pious or, or treacly or any of it. I just, I just felt like, uh, as, as kind of, I don't want to say pedestrian, God knows, but as conventionally made as a lot of this film is, uh, it's conventional in a way that is perfectly right for this small story and the characters and, to me, it's like a brief encounter for the 21st century. I don't want to overpraise it or make it sound like it's, you know, like it's pumping melodrama or even even a lot of overt drama. But it's it's just full of what I would call real life and the stuff of it, and I love it. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? I love the way that you said none of them are, are villains and that it's confronting this idea that you can truly love somebody and still think about, not in a they got away, but just like I was a different person and if I stayed on that path, who would I have been and would I still have been with him? And what's what's fascinating about the film for me is that it doesn't give you that answer. She doesn't know because she doesn't know who she would have been if she was still the girl she was. She's Nora now, right? And that, but that doesn't mean those feelings go away. It's just that's that was a different life, um, which I, which is why I think the the title is so apt because they talk about Binyun and the way that literal past lives they lived, they must have known each other, but that she also had a past life that altered completely and I, I think this was my number three film and I, I just think it is so beautifully layered it's another one I saw in theaters twice at two different festivals and that last sequence is just it's heartbreaking because it's it's heartbreaking while also to your point hopeful because you know she has someone who loves her so much in John McGarrow's character that he let her have that moment he didn't get jealous maybe he did and he didn't express it but he knew he loved her and respected her enough that he knew she needed a, a final. No, and you don't get any phony right? nobility from that character. Or any Nothing. Of that. And then she's falling apart. And instead of him being a piece of shit about it, he just gives her the hug yeah. she needs. And it's like, it's so mature. It's, I don't know if like her real husband would be that kind. I don't know if any man would be that kind, but I would like to think that yeah. people would be yeah. that supportive of their partner. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it, but, but man, the first, I mean, the first minute or two, you know, that scene in the bar where you're just laying out, who are these three? And you're hearing people kind of speculate on this sort of 3 a.m. conversation that can't quite hear across mm -hmm. the bar. And it's an interesting use of voiceover. And it's, I mean, so much, I mean, that brilliant opening, brilliant close and, uh, I don't know. I just haven't seen movies that had that kind of like launch and also that kind of button at the end. It's just so beautifully Killers of the Flower Moon and, you know, a slightly different budget range, uh, you know, has <laughs> just almost $200 million difference. But, uh, I, you know, that just, I, I, it is heartening. This was a heartening movie year because so many brand new filmmakers and so many, you know, 80 year old veterans, a few of them anyway, one or two, uh, you just, you just feel like they're not, they're, they're just 
figuring it out anew and the results can just be magical when you when you get lucky past lives a great film highly recommended here when we reviewed it upon its release this brings us to josh your number one film of the year and it's a true exception so far among the number ones and also among all the films that we have heard about because you're the only one who has this movie in your top 10, which of course doesn't necessarily mean that any of us here aren't fans of it, but you did put this film at number one and it's not exactly a shocking choice when you consider who the filmmaker is. I mean, to Michael's point, there is a filmmaker master in his early eighties, you know, someone who's already proven to be a savant of the cinematic art form, uh, still working at the top of his powers. Hayao Miyazaki is who I'm thinking of. This is to take nothing away from Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese. Killers is in my top 15. Everyone can relax. I just want to make sure, you know, Miyazaki gets his due as well for what is taking place this year. I just want him to have a seat at the same elder statesman table. For the record, Miyazaki, I believe 82, Scorsese 81. I mean, yeah, Michael, incredible that we're getting this level of work from the both of them. Um, and I do think The Boy and the Heron is, it's good enough to support this claim. It's top tier Miyazaki for me. Um, also, as some of our guest voicemailers have said about Killers of the Flower Moon, it's something of an apotheosis project. You know, this is very much synthesizes his greatest achievements. I think immediately of the pensive playfulness you'll find in something like My Neighbor Totoro, but I also think of the visionary world building of Princess Mononoke. Um, both of those things are here while at the same time, boy in the heron, it just, it's its own stirring standalone work of art also. What is this place? This world is filled with the dead. I know it's a lie, but I have to see. I'm looking for someone. Let's go. I like to lobby for family films as well when they are made at the craft and level of the more serious fare that we usually discuss. I mean, I've long argued for children's films to be taken seriously. So if we're going to get one that's also a best career or a career pinnacle, at least from a filmmaker who is a master in the genre, I'm going to have it very high on my year end list. Um, and so, yeah, in this case, it's the boy and the Heron, it's in theaters now. See it on a big screen if you can. Also, I'm curious, you know, there are some fascinating parallels in this movie with Godzilla minus one. I mean, I saw these within probably 10 days of each other in terms of reflecting Japanese films, reflecting on World War II. Mm -hmm. did, did anyone else notice that? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I watched Godzilla minus one maybe a week or two after The Boy and the Heron and had a similar thought. This is one, Josh, that I definitely like All Dirt Roads. I, I wish I could have seen in the theater because it's one I liked. And Mariah, you might you might be here on the same page with me a little bit. We'll we'll find out based on something you said about where you're at with Miyazaki. I like The Boy and the Heron and I recommend it, but I was surprisingly unmoved by it. And I read Justin Chang's review in the LA Times. I've seen other comments on Letterboxd. And it's one of those cases where it's not that I saw a different movie. Than Justin Chang saw a great review, by the way. I just didn't have the experience that he had with it or the experience you had with it, Josh. And I am keenly aware that this is almost certainly a me problem. <laughs> it's not a Miyazaki problem. But I, I do think that The Boy and the Heron helped kind of crystallize for me what 
kind of Miyazaki fan I am. We had that poll question recently on the show where we said to listeners, not that you have to pick your favorite or pick your best, but you can only keep one. And in assessing that, I commented on the fact that I tend to favor the Miyazaki movies that are imaginative and fantastic and show us things we've never seen before or never seen that way before, but are more tethered and streamlined narratively. I like Porco Rosso. I love Kiki's Delivery Service. I love The Wind Rises, My Neighbor Totoro. And I favor those over, say, Howl's Moving Castle or even the scale and the sprawlingness of Princess Mononoke and The Boy and the Heron. Spirited Away was my pick in the poll because I think it's the epitome of Miyazaki's magic in terms of hitting that sweet spot of, of narrative focus and wonder. It is that that for me, and I know for quite a few other people as well, it did win that poll. The deeper Mahito goes into this alternate universe, and the more who's-its and what's-its and doppelgangers that he encounters, I just got, I got more disengaged from the emotional journey of it. I have not seen all of Miyazaki, so I this is based on the handful. I think I've seen six or seven. I really love the artistry and style of Miyazaki's films. I just, I, th- I think maybe I would have, if I'd seen them as a child, I could have had like that childhood connection to them. But as an a- adult, I find, I find it hard to connect with a lot of things that are for children, even though Miyazaki isn't for children necessarily. Lots of adults watch them. I get that. Um, animation in general, I think is a hard thing for me. And it was when I was a kid too, to be honest, I did not watch a lot of cartoons. I was watching sitcoms instead of you know, uh, recess or whatever. And so I think animation, I always have trouble connecting emotionally the same way. And I, I, I and it, that's a total me problem. <laughs> it is 100% a me problem because I know animation can make people cry the exact same way. All dogs go to heaven makes me cry. Um, it's also a great gangster picture, but um, I, I think for Miyazaki with me and Miyazaki, it's one of those, like, I appreciate the craft I don't feel the emotion and I wish like I could have a turn, but maybe it's one of the ones I haven't seen. will 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 turn for me. I don't, I don't know. Cause it's, it's definitely, he's definitely a filmmaker blind spot that I feel really terribly about and they're all available easily now. So may- maybe next year will be the year I finally just like go through it and, and find it. But like the same thing happened with, with Tarkovsky, not that they make similar films at all, but Tarkovsky is a filmmaker who I appreciate the craft and then I feel nothing. Um, I feel it is solely a me problem. <laughs> it's interesting to your point about, you know, without coming with full experience of all his films, I just had a comment mm-hmm. on my review at Letterboxd of The Boy and the Heron, Jared Wilson, actually today. And this was his first Miyazaki. And he was talking mm-hmm. about how he struggled with it. And so so I, I kind of just said, oh, yeah, I get that. Like, I would not start here with The Boy and the Heron um, for anyone, actually. And I, I pointed him to, I think, Porco Rosso, Adam, which you like, is a good maybe starter place or Kiki's Delivery Service and and kind of like, you know, help you get used to, I mean, if you put it in terms of reality and fantasy terms, it's like mm-hmm. start moving into that fantasy a little bit at a time. So, so yeah, maybe Kiki's Delivery Service for anyone who's listening to this and wants to start with Miyazaki. And then if you are a fantasy person, maybe then Princess Mononoke is where I'd go next. Because although there is a lot of who's it's and what's it's or whatever, whatever the phrase was, they're within a more standard fantasy narrative. 
And then you can kind of start merging those two things, which I'd argue Totoro does a fair amount. You know, um, it gets pretty, pretty wild in Totoro, especially once the cat bus shows up. Um, and I think for me, Boy and the Heron just did meet those two things perfectly and was kind of a kind of a, a wreck with it, just like I was kind of a wreck with Godzilla minus zero. <laughs> I expected that was a possibility in Miyazaki and it was in Godzilla minus zero and you know, to what I was saying about them coming out within the next same 10 days, I, I was a wreck about them for similar reasons. You know, the, this understanding of loss and grief and working your way through that um, in Godzilla. It's like working your way through that with this huge creature threatening to kill you at any moment. In Miyazaki, it's working your way through that with the help, maybe, of some of these creatures who might eat you at any moment. But they're they're part of the process, too. Well, being a wreck and loss and grief, it sounds like you're actually trying to set up the next movie we're going to talk about, the movie Ooh, that, is, let's do that it. is my number one film of the year. And Josh, I'm very happy to see that you have it at number six. It is the latest from filmmaker Andrew High. It's called All of Us Strangers. Unfortunately, doesn't come out. I think it, it gets a Christmas Day release, I think, in some cities and then limited run in Chicago. I think it opens January 5th look for it then. And boy, am I encouraging you to look for it. Then Andrew Scott is the lead. His character is named Adam. And we devoted a lot of time on our last show, the best performances of the year, talking about him and how good he is. But this is the second year in a row that my number one choice features Paul Meskel, who is Adam's neighbor and eventual lover, Harry. And characters, this is not a spoiler at all with this film. You can read any plot description about it. Characters who exist or at least mingle around in this liminal space between past and present and reality and memory. I think there's even potentially an interesting through line for Meskel's character in both films, from After Sun to his character here. There's also some ethereal dancing that we get in, in both movies. That's the way I'll phrase it. There's how they both appear to be working in an autobiographical realm and the meta construction of that. Think about the adult Sophie and after son recalling a trip with her dad and watching digital home movies, not unlike the adult Charlotte Wells, the director of the film. Adam is a screenwriter. He's creating scenes not unlike Andrew High, working on a project that requires him to, to journey back 30 years to his childhood, metaphorically, but then in the case of this film, also literally, as whenever he he goes back to his childhood home, he finds his parents, played by Claire Foy and Jamie Bell, and they're, they're living, it seems, as they, they did the day that they died in an accident, I believe around the time he was 12 years old. I commented on Letterboxd that it's the weekend, thinking of the Andrew High film, not the Godard. It's the weekend meets Field of Dreams mashup I never knew I needed. And I do say that adoringly because I quite like High's breakout film, and I also do love Field of Dreams. But how do you how do you begin to unpack what Scott's character Adam is trying to understand and trying to come to terms with in this movie? It's not my personal experience, but I recognize how so much of it is tied to Adam's experience growing up gay and how he's stuck in this in-between he knows who he is, but he isn't out. And then he never got a chance to reveal himself. He never got a chance to come out to his parents. He high also draws on the impact that AIDS had on people who came of age and were entering adulthood. They were becoming sexual beings in this period. And again, you have this kind of external stunting of identity and creating the sense of, of 
detachment or creating a sense of isolation. And then separate from all of that, there's the trauma of losing your parents at a young age, navigating and maintaining your identity in a new relationship, no matter what your sexuality is. It's also undoubtedly a post-pandemic movie. I can't recall if it's ever explicitly invoked. I don't think it is, but it it really lays into that that sense of alienation and that sense of isolation from the rest of the world. And I said being wrecked. I mean, like After Sun, just thinking about the movie, honestly, just thinking about the movie in certain moments from it makes me sigh deeply. <laughs> like I have a physical, visceral reaction to moments from this film. And, you know, a, a, a contrast to a film we talked about earlier, nothing in common, Zone of Interest, a film that doesn't utilize any close-ups at all that I recall, and High really emphasizes close-ups and the processing of emotions and experiences through the faces of these characters. I knew Andrew Scott was a good actor. I probably knew he was a very good actor. I was stunned by him and and how he how he knows exactly how to calibrate his performance for the camera. And I was further convinced of of Meskel's immense talent. Drink. Let's drop the names. It's meant to be the best in the world, but I couldn't tell you why, so... Oh, thanks. Okay, um... Okay, how about I come in anyway? If not for a drink, then... For whatever else you might want. Um... I think that's a good idea. <laughs> And here again, like so many of the years best, the ending is one that I've concocted at least three different theories about (laughs) since seeing it. I find myself constantly thinking about it. I'm constantly thinking about the vulnerability of Adam and of Harry and of Adam's parents. And here's the last time as I wrap up that I'll mention After Sun, but it's another small film in terms of its scale, the locations, the number of characters, etc. It's minimal. It's not Oppenheimer here like past lives for you, right, Michael? It's not Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon or Barbie. But in terms of its its emotional power, it's huge and it's expansive. This is a he as you're describing, you know, what it feels like to watch the movie Adam. It, it makes me think for those of us who still use DVDs, if you had this on your shelf I, and I was gonna watch it, I feel like I would pull it from the shelf so carefully hold it with two hands hmm. and just walk over to the player with it because it it seems so vulnerable yeah what is being expressed here and it is in so many of the filmmaking elements you talked about um, the dreaminess the dissolve that this movie opens with which I think needs to be considered with one of the all-time dissolve shots. Um, there's a vulnerability and tenderness to that, but it is so much in Scott's performance. Along these same lines, it, you almost feel this soft sadness that he carries. You feel like you want to look at him sort of askance as you're watching the movie, because if you look at him too hard, he just might crumble on the screen. You you might do him damage. Yeah. Um, and and I don't think we've we've called out this line yet. Again, we don't want to. We don't want to spoil too much, but how about when he says to his mom, everything's different now, everything's different. And then you see that everything in his eyes is telling her the opposite, or at least, at least allowing himself to be honest and and know that, no, it's, it's not that different as much as he's trying to convince her of, um, and then the last thing I'll say about it, just because we may have sound made this movie sound like something no one wants to go near because it's so heartbreaking. 
what a fabulous soundtrack. I mean, yeah. I was in with Pet Shop Boys. I was in with Blur. And then I believe we get a deep cut of Fine Young Cannibals. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that come, came on and I was like, hell yeah. How about that? And then the great <laughs> thing about those choices is, you know, they're they're thought of as more like dance pop, right? Most of that stuff. Yeah. But every one of those um, those groups, those artists, there's a there's a tinge of sadness beneath even their danciest tracks. Um, so perfect choices there, uh, something that works in a little bit of a different vein than this th- this heavy heartache we've been we've been focusing on. God, you guys are killing me. I haven't. I deliberately at some point about a month ago just said I'm not going to get to them all. I'm going to wait for this one because I want to start the new year with something mm. that people seem a lot of people really really love, and I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Yeah, it has it has probably my favorite or top. That's hard to say. Top three needle drops of the year is the blur needle drop mm-hmm. for this. Just in terms of the way the song is used yes. with the visuals is like definitely perfect. Well, again, if you don't have a chance to see it around Christmas time, you hopefully will get a chance to see it when it's getting its limited release in early January. Just because we finally did get to our number ones doesn't mean we're completely done with the show, though. Michael, <laughs> Mariah, stay in your chairs. It is time. Well, Mariah especially has to stay in her chair. It's time for our outlier picks. And what we mean by those is these are films like The Boy and the Heron that only appeared on one list. They were unique to our list. And we're going to start it all off with a film that maybe surprisingly to some has not come up yet. But it is a film that I quite liked. Hi, everyone. This is the current film spotting PA, Betty Lavendero. And I am so excited to be sharing with you my favorite film of 2023. I have to admit, like everyone else, I have some blockbusters at the top of my list, including Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Barbie for my fellow Greta Gerwig stands out there. But there is a movie that I caught over the weekend that has been sitting with me emotionally still, and that's Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. Now... This movie is not revolutionary. There are no new character archetypes or scientific advancements in CGI. It's just a story directed by a human about other humans that touches on these themes that we're so familiar with in life, like love and sadness and grief. After the two hours in the theater, I think you leave a little bit different of a person and reframe the way that it means to be a human being and how to treat each other with love and kindness. And I see that as a success in my eyes. I hope you've given it a watch. And if you haven't, that you support a local independent theater if possible and watch Paul Giamatti's brilliant performance. In the meantime, feel free to follow me on Letterboxd at Betty Lavendero. Would love to hear everyone else's top picks of the year. And I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday and that we see each other again in 2024 for more episodes of Film Spotting and more amazing movies. Josh, I knew we had good taste when we hired Betty Lavandero to be our PA. She's served us incredibly well here on the show for, I think, over a year in a lot of different capacities. And there she is coming in strong with support for a film that actually I have as my number five of the year, the new one from Alexander Payne, The Holdovers. And I know you like that film quite a bit as well. Unfortunately, you did end up leaving it on the outside looking in of your top 10. But a quick note for Betty This transition into the new year will mark her transition away from the show. Veronica will be our full-time PA, and we did just want to take a moment to thank Betty and make sure she had a chance to share her favorite film of this year. 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Betty. I mean, so much behind the scenes stuff that she has done for us. And I, I love that, that phrase she used to describe the holdovers, a story directed by a human. It's so perfect for this movie, but also when you see as many movies, new movies, I think as we all do, it doesn't always feel that way, right? Like that should be, that should be a given. And I think it is for the movies we've been talking about when you talk about the best of the year, but, but when you're making your way through a lot of films, uh, I don't know that you can always say a a story directed by a human is what I just experienced. You absolutely do with the holdovers. Listener Scott Ross said this, the holdovers can stand with the best of the 1970s in its tone and structure. The holdovers is warm hearted yet retains a world weary edge. Thank you, Alexander Payne, for making another beautiful slice of Americana. You have pulled off another miraculous feat of filmmaking. So Scott's a big fan of the holdovers. Again, number five on my list. I have two other outlier choices I'll mention here later. But Mariah, this is where you you departed from your last appearance on the show, a little more crossover, but this is what makes it fun and what makes it fun to hear from you. I'm going to list the films that made your top 10 list. It's basically your entire top 10 list <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because I think is past lives really the only film that otherwise made your list. Maybe one more. Uh, an all dirt roads. Yeah. And all dirt roads. I'm sorry. You're number one. So <laughs> all dirt roads and past lives are the only two we've talked about that actually made your top 10. I'll quickly list them. Blackberry. At number 10, you've got Lakota Nation versus the United States. At number nine, followed by another documentary, very good doc that won the Chicago Film Critics Best Doc Award, Kokomo City. Then you've got La Camera, the latest from Alice Rohrwacher at number seven. Godland, number six. The Blue Captain, number five. You've got a tie at number four. I'll definitely let you explain, Amanda and Fremont. Finally, a movie at number two called Plan 75. I'm going to turn the floor over to you to spotlight a few of those titles. I'll be really swift. Um, Several of the films that I had on my list were, you had an overarching theme. I realized when I was putting this together, putting my notes together, my overarching theme, not every film hits it, is finding uh, films that have a very staunch political stance and tell their stories very poetically. I think that's really what I'm drawn to in cinema currently as a you know, 38 year old person. Um, that's just what I want to see. I want to see poetics and I want to see politics. And so Lakota nation is another film directed by a poet and it's a poetic look at, um, the Lakota nation people's basically attempting to continue to thrive in their, as their own selves in a hostile nation known as the United States, uh, Kokomo city, obviously a bunch of, uh, black trans women, like telling their stories, they all have political lives because we have politicized their bodies. Um, but they're also just funny women. And it's both. It gets to, you see all of it. You see their whole humanity. It's, it's also the, maybe the only funny documentary I've ever seen other than maybe the final member, like just a hilarious documentary. La Camira, Al- Alice Rowicher, Alicia Rowicher. She is someone who has politics like bleeding out of her cinema, yet all of her films are like fables I don't know how she does it. Uh, it's it's just, I, she. I look forward to, every time she has a new film, I'm like, I, it's going to be in my top 10. I just know it. Godland is a film that's about who gets to tell history, who is recorded in history, uh, dealing with uh, being a colonial person who was colonized. Like uh, People don't often think of Iceland as a colonial land, but it was. And this film purposefully is in Danish and Icelandic because it is a, a people in a place of two nations and they've had to deal with that for 200 plus years. And it really beautifully 
looks at that. It looks at the duality of nature versus religion and man versus nature and so many things. And it also just made me like cry multiple times. The Blue Caftan, another film that's highly political about being gay in uh, Morocco, but also loving your wife and loving an, a traditional craft that is no longer seen as uh, why am I paying you to hand stitch this beautiful traditional caftan when I could go buy a crappy one, you know, made by probably a sweatshop for half the price and I'd have a new style. And so it's looking at, at how this man is trying to hold on to one tradition, but like tradition is also putting him in a box and it's a very sensual film. Um, my tie with Amanda and Fremont, not necessarily political films, although Fremont definitely is, is because um, I did not realize it when I saw these films. I saw Amanda at TIFF last year, 2022. I saw Fremont at Sundance. I did not realize that they are there is a creative duo who made these films. Um, Amanda is written and directed by Carolina Cavalli, who is Italian. And Fremont is directed by Babak Jalali, but co-written with Carolina Cavalli and then Babak Jalali edited both films. Um, I think it is, they're both very funny kind of deadpan slice of life with these women who, who are living lives that are kind of stuck. Um, the main character in Fremont, she's stuck because she was an Afghani translator and now she's living in Fremont, California, working at a, a fortune cookie factory. And she's just trying to sleep and put, put her nightmarish sort of past behind her and find a new community in Amanda, it's sort of a, an arrested development kind of thing with a girl who is 24 and has never had a friend who wasn't her like uh, parents' uh, housekeeper. And this is one I watched a few times. And when I watched it with Robert, he was like, I see why you like this movie. This character is you. And I was like, that's harsh, but also really true. Like, I have never seen a character as similar to me in many ways that I some some I'll admit to and others I'm like oh no I, I don't I don't want to feel this scene um it's just very funny and and exactly I feel like exactly my humor and exactly like this felt like me at 23 and I think that I think I really look forward to seeing what Cavalli in particular because she's the co-writer on both these films but Babak and I think they're both operating on a really interesting creative level because they are so independent. They're writing independently, they're producing independently, they're editing independently, and they're able to keep this very distinct idiosyncratic vision and humor. And part of me doesn't want them to like get a higher budget because I don't want them to ever compromise. Um, but also I would like more people to see their films. And then the last one on here, Plan 75, I saw this at Carlo Vivari last summer, 2022. Then I saw it at TIFF. And then it finally vaguely got released in March of this year. Nobody saw it. It's so beautiful. It was Japan's um, Oscar pick from 2022. It's written and directed by this woman, Chihayakawa. It was her first film. It's based on her short film. It's vaguely sci-fi in that it's a somewhat our maybe... 10 years in the future, Japan and plan 75 is this um, government's plan to euthanize if they want to senior citizens. So they'll stop being a burden on society. And it goes through the um, three characters. One, a woman who is 
trying to raise money. She's Filipino, Filipina, and she's trying to send money back to her child in the Philippines. And she's working as like a caregiver at the facility where these elderly people are, are on their way to die. One person is a bureaucrat, literally just like stamping people's forms to go die. And the third is a woman who is not ready to die, but society is basically telling her she should. And it kind of looks at how just because someone is quote unquote, no longer useful in society does not mean they're done, done living. And they, they really show her enjoying grocery shopping and they show her enjoying like looking at mountains and playing bowling. And it's, it's just like a beautiful film about how efficiency is not a way to measure life. And every character figures that out by the end, but it does it in a way that's not didactic. It's not trying to teach you. It's just poetically showing you that like life is more than just forms. Life is more than just, are you adding something quote unquote to society? And I, I have thought about this film pretty much every day for the last like year and a half. So I knew it had to stay on, on my list. And I wish it had gotten a proper release. I feel like it was released in like five theaters, but they just announced it's going to be on Criterion Channel January 1st. So if you have Criterion Channel, you can watch this film. I'm pretty sure Godland and the Blue Caftan are also on Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. So they are. Yeah. Slight and little all, plug for Criterion Channel. All of your choices are available one way or another on one platform. Oh, that's VOD. great. Yeah. So nine films, nine different titles <laughs> got in in under nine minutes. Well done. Applause for Mariah. Here's some support for one of those choices from our longtime listener, Ofer Liebergal, a great film year, possibly the best film year since 2011 or earlier. So many options, but I must go with the most uplifting experience I had this year, a film that amazed me in every scene during its final act, revealing more layers of complexity and storytelling and understanding of human behavior, a film that shows how the past is still a part of the present without being nostalgic, a crime comedy and a family drama, a movie about sadness that leaves you with a large smile, La Chimera. I'm going to default to your pronunciation by Alice Warwicker. Warwicher, you said? No, Aliche, it's Aliche Rowacher. Oh, I'm I definitely believe. saying Alice, but I'll say I'll say <laughs> Rowicher. She's she's a director that somehow just gets better with each film for me, according to Ofer. Thank you for that note. Thank you, Mariah. Michael, you have but three films on your list, and these are titles. Well, there's one title among them that is right on that precipice where some people like you, consider it a 2023 film. Some others consider it a 2022 film. Either way, you've now managed to make me feel bad two years in a row for putting <laughs> Return to Soul on your list. It's at number seven. Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, at number five. And then The Boy, a short film, Michael, at number two. Tell us about it. Well, The, the Boy. Now, I, this is this is a film. It's a final film from an Israeli filmmaker, Yachav Winner. And you can stream it on YouTube. There's a story about it in The New Yorker. It's a very simple 25-minute portrait of an Israeli soldier living with PTSD and his family very near the Gaza border, coping with air raids, nearby explosions. And at one point, his father says, don't worry, that's one of ours, which offers zero comfort, of course. The filmmaker, Winner, was killed in the October 9 Hamas massacre, but there is not a speck of political simplification or agitprop, or one-sided argumentation in The Boy. It's profoundly humanistic. It's the kind of morally astute work the Israeli cultural agency does not like because it dares to show the effects of war without end on the Israeli people, all people. 
I'm so glad I found the film and it's heartbreaking that it's the last we'll see from this filmmaker. I, I, I love it. I mean, I saw that and I, I knew I had to find a way to write about it and I knew I, I, I don't want to venture directly into politics, uh, uh, leading with a political outrage or, or just something, but I felt like I, I cannot, uh, I cannot ignore what's happening over there. And I want to say something, you know, and, and I think especially when you saw just as the weeks went by where is, Israel lost the moral high ground, <laughs> uh, in my view, uh, is it, is it for me to write a political column on that? No. Can I look at some of the issues through this 25 minutes of film? That isn't just isn't just timely or topical. It is, you know, one of the best things I saw this year, and I just hope more people see it. It's terrific. Um, Return to Soul, I love it. I mean, I, I really, it's a kind of an interesting bookend of past lives. Davy Chow, second feature, uh, uh, kind of kind of a simple, straightforward premise about a Korean-born woman adopted by a French couple, raised in France, and it's about her search for her birth parents, the ones she never knew. It's just a beautiful gliding sort of experience, really visually supple, my number seven. And number five for me, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, man. I'll tell you, I didn't grow up with Judy <laughs> Bloom. I didn't read the 1970 coming-of-age classic until two months before I saw the movie. But the film version, directed by Kelly Freeman Craig, who made The Edge of Seventeen, which was really good, too. There was more writing on this project because of the pedigree. But my God, I mean, the casting was fantastic. And, and I mean, all of it. And, and, and most of all, Rachel McAdams, who... You know, as the mother uh, navigating, so you know, I mean, navigating the family's tricky move from Manhattan to New Jersey, the land of PTA committees and obsessive lawn care. And I mean, it, you could play a lot of that for uh, uh, borderline caricature in any direction. Uh, there's, there's a, you know, there's sort of a fundamentalist Christian Jewish split within the family that's always been there in the book and everything. And I'll tell you, this thing just felt like it led with its whole heart all the way. And that was another one where I just thought, they had the nerve to just simply end it the way the book did with a mother-daughter conversation about a, a you know kind of a linchpin moment in this adolescent girl's life, and I just I, I just soared out of there. I thought they got it right. Not enough people saw it. Why? I don't know. Yeah. Interesting, you know, interesting maybe older audience. Not really, not really, you know, a lot of 12, 11, 11, 12 year olds now who you know grew up with the book the way 11 and 12 year olds of 1970s era did. I don't know, but it, it'll last. So, you know, I, I was just really happy to see it. Yeah. It's one of those in Betty's words uh, that she said earlier, dire directed by a human being. <laughs> that's right. That's right. More than most. I yep. think yeah. yep. Josh setting up your outliers here. We have another guest with a voicemailer and she has a choice that we have not heard anything about yet. Hello. My name is Roxana Haddadi. I am a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, who also writes about film and pop culture. And when asked to share my favorite film of 2023, I went through a lot of choices. I really loved Ferrari, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Iron Claw, Priscilla, Fremont, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Uh, but none of those are my choice. My choice is J.A. Bayona's Society of the Snow, which is ostensibly a survival thriller about the 1972 Andes flight disaster, which has already been adapted into a film starring Ethan Hawke. Um, but I went into this film knowing very little 
about Bayona's approach and basically just being completely knocked back by the immersiveness of the production design and the visual effects and all the disaster stuff. And also the really beautiful, intimate, vulnerable aspect of this script, which tells us about the survivors and their struggles with faith and their struggles with God as they are forced to rely on cannibalism to survive. Uh, it really just messed me up and I think is a very emotional, challenging, beautiful to look at, difficult to sit with film. And it's my favorite of 2023. Thanks, Roxana. I'm not too familiar with Society of the Snow, though Jay Bayona, very different kind of film, probably, but made one of my favorite horror movies of the past 10, 15 years. However, it's been El Orfanato, the orphanage. You can see Society of the Snow when it comes to Netflix on January 5th. Josh, your outlier picks. We've already heard one of them back during our Golden Brick nominees. Yeah, Skinnamarink. Uh, absolutely. The micro horror film. That's number seven. I promised Miles I would include him on this list. So here it is. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse at number nine. Uh, you Hurt My Feelings. Number four on my list. Love this one. I spent some time in our bonus episode, I think, Adam, or maybe it was the acting, best acting of the year episode, praising uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and writer-director Nicole Holoff Center. Um, but the one I want to spend just a quick minute on is one that hasn't come up at all in any of our discussions, and that is Sofia Coppola's Priscilla at number eight on my list. I'll take all the caged bird heroines Sofia Coppola wants to give us. Priscilla Presley, Marie Antoinette. Scarlett Johansson stuck in Japan. Uh, I think I joked on one of our earlier episodes, Adam, I'm pretty sure I would have preferred her Josephine to Ridley Scott's Napoleon. So if that's on deck, I'll be there for that. Um, it's just so funny that critics of Coppola say, well, she only does one thing, you know, but, but it's curious to me that that isn't leveled at other filmmakers who have obsessive styles or recurring themes. Uh, also, I don't think it's true if you've seen all of her films, but um, yeah, Priscilla, I loved it this year and wanted to make sure it got its due before we sign off here. I am not, of course, Josh, accusing you of plagiarism. I know you have not seen this because you otherwise would not have said it, but the most popular review of Napoleon on Letterboxd is from a username, Audrey Picnic. It has 19,703 likes and I'm one of them. And it's, can't wait for Sofia Coppola's Josephine there <laughs> from <it is>. November fifteenth, twenty twenty three, which was was a very good line, and I, I think I would have liked that better than Napoleon for sure. So I only have three outliers. We already heard one of them, the holdovers at number five for me. I'm going with a movie that that no maybe about it. It it was unique. It is unique in my cinema watching experience. It's a film called The Teacher's Lounge. I've got it at number nine, set to come out in theaters in early 2024. It played at the Chicago Film Festival. It's been on the fest circuit. It also got some love from the Chicago film critics. It made the ballot for best foreign language films. And I'm so glad I caught up with it. Here's the unique part of it for me. I had already gotten done watching one movie. It was pretty late. We're getting like 1030 at night and I'm exhausted, but I kind of feel like I want to keep going, start making headway. We had our voting Josh due the next day for the CFCA ballots. And unfortunately, this title is one that 
I couldn't bring up on my Roku and actually watch the digital screener on TV. And I didn't, I didn't want to watch it on my laptop and I didn't want to have to get out the HDMI cable and do that whole dance, you know? So I just said to myself, you know what? I know I'm, I'm not going to be able to finish it, but I just want to get a taste of it. I'll start watching it on my phone. Never done it before. Sat on my couch. I literally was just going to watch like the first five minutes of the teacher's lounge on my phone to get a sense of what the movie was. And 90 minutes later, I was still sitting on my couch holding my phone in my hand. It's that compelling a film. And Rye, I know from your letterbox that you've seen it and like me also really appreciate yeah. it and like that central performance too. Leonie Banesh, I think is how you say it. I don't know German. I don't know how to pronounce her name. She's had a great like decade, but hasn't, kind of like Sandra Hewler, hasn't really mm -hmm. broken out in America. And I feel like this is the movie where people are finally going to be like, oh, wait, this is a talent. Yeah, she plays, she plays a teacher in a German school who's very idealistic and there's been some thefts in the school. She's very much against the tactics the school administration is using with her students. And then in her attempt to <laughs> uncover the truth, and she thinks it's pretty black and white, she only makes life way more complicated <laughs> and difficult for her and everyone else in the school. And if you don't think it doesn't fit really neatly into my theme about trying to decipher what is reality, what is fiction, just making sense of these circumstances Definitely, it, it fits that bill. It's a wonderful film. I encourage more people to see. And then I've got another foreign language film. I know, Mariah, this is my other outlier at number six. I know we disagree about this one. You <laughs> kind of dismiss the taste of things as, as you know, food porn. And I guess I'm just more susceptible to food porn than you. And I've got some support. Fellow Chicago-based critic Isaac Feldberg lists the taste of things as his number one. Let's hear from Isaac. Hi, Adam and Josh. It's Isaac Feldberg. Thanks for having me. It's been a great year of the movies for me, and my best one of the year is still changing whenever somebody asks me. But one that completely blew me away is The Taste of Things, previously titled The Pot of Fum, also known as Le Pachon de the Dom Bouchon. Uh, three titles is perhaps decadent, but that's really par for the course of the film, uh, which has been directed and written by John Owen. It's uh, set in 19th century France and focuses on the relationship between a legendary French gourmand, played by Benoit Machinel, and his extraordinarily gifted cook, who's played by Juliette Binoche. Uh, the characters share a love language in their mutual dedication to creating these lavish, incredible meals uh, for themselves and Vidan's friends. Uh, their pleasure, and one of the principal pleasures of the film, is in their preparation of the food. In these scenes that are beautifully shot and staged and inhabited by the actors with this effortless grace and clear skill. Uh, so they become as sensual and vibrant as ballet. And Benosha and Majumel were once partners. They share a daughter. And there's this gentle warmth and reverence to their chemistry, a certain maturity that really deepens the character's love story across all of the seasons of their lives that it depicts. It's a transcendent film and one of my favorites of the year by far. Thank you for having me. I'm Isaac Feldberg with RogerEbert.com and a bunch of other fine places. Thank you, Isaac. That, along with The Wiseman this year, just made me want to drop everything, move to France, go to the countryside, 
I need a bunch of money so I can just enjoy all those culinary delights. But I do also love those performances, Juliette Binoche. And since I butchered it so badly last week on our performances of the year, I can say a little more correctly, Benoit Majamel is very good in, in the lead role there along with Binoche. That's it. That's, that's all of our picks. I thought we would give listeners a chance to hear all of these choices. If you have your list in front of you, I also will remind listeners that they can always go to filmspotting.net slash lists and view these and print them up if you want, cross them off as you get a chance to catch up with them all. But let's hear in order, Michael Phillips, your choices for the best films. Okay. Past Lives, The Boy, Killers of the Flower Moon, Barbie, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, The Zone of Interest, Return to Soul, The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar, and The Swan, and The Ratcatcher, and Poison, Oppenheimer, and May, December. Mariah. Uh, All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt, Plan 75, Past Lives, Amanda and Fremont, The Blue Caftan, Godland, La Camira, Kokomo City, Lakota Nation versus United States, and Blackberry. All right, I'm up. The Boy and the Heron. Miyazaki knows what he's doing. Anatomy of a Fall, Asteroid City, and all those Roald Dahl shorts along with it. You Hurt My Feelings, All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt, All of Us Strangers, Skinamarink, Priscilla, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and a little movie called Barbie. I've got at number one, All of Us Strangers, Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, Asteroid City, and The Holdovers. That rounds out my top five. At number six, The Taste of Things, Anatomy of a Fall, May-December, the teacher's lounge and the zone of interest final chance to throw in some titles you loved from the year. I was trying to just kind of throw together an honorable mention 11 through 20 right now. I've got an 11 through 19. I'm going to have to figure out what other title is going to make the cut, but the titles that were toughest for me to leave off were the Wiseman doc, Suzume, another animated film from japan this year past lives i did li- i did like that one susan may's great how about like i'm so glad i just caught up with it the iron claw from sean durkin poor things the film our producer sam was championing earlier i'm with you josh on across the spider verse i know we also really like showing up from kelly reichert and then i saved this one for last just because i don't want to give michael a chance to crap on it david fincher's the killer <laughs> One of your worst uh, films of the year. Of the year. Yeah, actually, no, it's not just one of mine. It just actually uh, has been declared it by the uh, uh-huh. objectivity <laughs> is, uh, you know, uh, Society of America uh-huh. to be a, one of the worst okay. films. Okay. So, well, maybe you've got a film in your 11 through 20 or any honorable mentions that I can disparage. Yeah, some year. Um, uh, but uh, the 11 through 20, good year when, when something like something I liked as much as Priscilla uh, it doesn't even make the top 20. It's just, I mean, it's just a matter of choice. I'm, it, this is coin flip time for me anyway, you know, you know, in terms of what makes some of these lists and some doesn't, but all dirt roads is in there in my 11 through 20 fair play Four daughters, the boots, Riley, this is kind of a, a weasel thing, but I wrote about it. The boots Riley series. I'm a Virgo. I loved, I loved it. Uh, in the rear view, this document, who saw that at the Chicago international film festival, the documentary in the rear view, Anybody? Anybody? Great, nope. great film about a Polish van driver who's just on a volunteer basis saving refugees, getting them out of Ukraine during the invasion before they die. And it's just it's just one conversation after another in the cab. That's it. 
That's it. Unbelievable. Uh, Poor Things is definitely on there. The Royal Hotel, the Kitty Green film from Australia, really good, great, I thought. Really good pulp. Uh, uh, Showing up, Kelly Riker. 1001, uh, A.V. Rockwell's uh, drama, terrific, I thought. And The Unknown Country, which proves what Mariah knows. and We all know that Lily Gladstone, uh, as far as I'm concerned, can can get her choice of roles uh, for the next 50 years, I hope. Unfortunately, nothing there I can make fun of. Let's move to Mariah. Um, well, I did. I cheated, so I did 11. And then we already talked about May, December. But my 13 through 20 would be Blue Jean. Um, great British film. Kind of a nice partner, I think, with all of us strangers in terms of like being queer in the time of Thatcher. Uh, Passages. Um, Priscilla. Ava DuVernay's origin of very difficult sit very intellectual film um but also very like heartfelt and everything she does uh this very small film that uh i had heard of but didn't almost didn't make time for and then i finally i found it on i don't remember where it was streaming somewhere called hannah ha ha it's basically mumblecore and i don't like mumblecore but it's like if mumblecore was actually good um (laughs) by jordan to Husky and Joshua Pikovsky. And it's just about this, this woman named Hannah who just wants to live like a simple life. She, she takes care of her dad who has, um, he's aging and needs, needs help, cognitive help. She works on a farm sometimes. She teaches piano, um, guitar lessons. She's kind of just living a, a purposeful life. And her brother's kind of a yuppie and trying to convince her that she's going to kick off her dad's health insurance and she should get a real job. And so she tries getting a real job and it's just horrible because as anyone who's ever had a real job knows, the grind is horrible. And it's just a very political, but very quiet film about maybe there's a different way of living life. And maybe we don't all have to be um, connected into the capitalistic, like, rabbit, not rabbit wheel, um, hamster wheel of going higher and higher. And maybe we shouldn't have to get soul-crushing jobs to just have health insurance. (laughs) It's a beautiful film. Um, and it's 75 minutes, so it's a very swift film. Um, Brother, which is a Canadian film that we played at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Um, King Cole, which is one of my other favorite documentaries about coal country and ramifications of dealing with having an entire infrastructure and culture, culture built around something that's killing the planet, but also is in, intrinsic to your way of life. And then Bottoms, which had, I think, for me, the best music, Needle Drop, of the year in terms of how a song was used. And I don't want to spoil it because it was, I laughed so hard when it happened in the movie, um, but also just a sick, beautiful little queer movie. And I, I, I loved it. Josh, what about you? I'll throw in one more title because it hasn't come up at all, but this was in my top 20 rodeo from director Lola Quiveron, basically uh, set in the world of underground motocross in the suburbs of Paris. That's rodeo. Check it out. You can find, a reminder, all of our top 10 lists, all of these movie titles, including What the Hell, the website space is free, or it doesn't cost that much. We'll we'll give you the 11 through 20 as well. We'll give you some additional movie picks, filmspotting.net, and just click on lists. We've done it. We've made it through another year talking about the best cinema, and we appreciate as always, that we had such great guests here in Mariah Gates and Michael Phillips. Michael, we'll start with you here. Thank you for coming on. And what do you got coming up? Anything you want to plug? Where can 
listeners find more about you? Well, first you? of all, hold on. We're doing the best cinema? I was doing movies. I have a whole other list of cinema. Uh-huh. So do, you have, oh. do we have like an hour? Or? <laughs> the real list. Look, no, as yeah. always, as always and ever, there I am at chicagotribune.com slash movies. And uh, also on Twitter, Phillips, sorry, X. Still have many moral qualms about being on X, but there I am at Phillips Tribune. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can hear me every Saturday on WFMT 98.7 doing the film music program soundtrack. Mariah, thank you again. Hope you'll come back. Hope we can get you for another year and would love to hear where listeners can find your stuff. Well, Josh and I have to do an August uh, Rachel Sinat movie. Yes. That's a new tradition. It is tradition. So. In the calendar. <laughs> but um, what, a, what do I, I have a, a best or great performances of the year piece on Glenn Howerton. I only got to write 250 words, which is not enough to write about how great he is in Blackberry, but that will be on Roger Ebert probably once this is dropped or will already be up because I think it's going up tomorrow. Um, And I'm writing about the costumes in Priscilla and, and why they're fantastic. And then my very first column for January is with Nancy Savoca, who um, her film household saints has finally been, the rights have been found again. It's been restored. It played at New York film fest. It's this beautiful, strange, weird, deeply Catholic, like, Scorsese wishes he could make a film this Catholic, Catholic film. It's going to be playing in theaters from Kino uh, in January. So that was my column. So I'll talk to her about the restoration and the film. And that's definitely for those of you who love doing you know, repertory rediscoveries, like put that on your calendar for January. Uh, it's so good. And it, it'll be on Blu-ray eventually from Kino and um, uh, who is it? Milestone Films. So that's what I'm up to. Thank you both again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. As for us, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. At FilmSpotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll, and this is an important one. We're asking what film should win the 2023 Golden Brick Award. Yes, the listener vote counts. In fact, Your vote gets its own award for the Golden Brick. For show t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Also, not too late to give the gift of a Film Spotting family membership. Learn more at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, a whole lot of titles, Josh. Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. Sean Durkin's family wrestling drama, The Iron Claw, with Zac Efron and Jeremy Allen White. I said it's in my 11 through 20. See it. Memory with Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard. And another one I missed here at the Chicago Film Festival, Steve McQueen's Occupied City, a documentary about the Nazi occupation of Amsterdam. Of course, my number one film of the year, a reminder to look for that, All of Us Strangers, on January 5th. On digital, I missed the critic screening. Now I can finally see what people are talking about, what the discourse is about surrounding Bradley Cooper's Maestro on Netflix. Yeah, I need to catch up with it too. Wasn't made readily available, I will say, for critics before year-end voting. Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, is also on Netflix. In wide release, you can see the rom-com with Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney, Anyone But You. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is out. The Color Purple and Michael Mann's Ferrari. Our next show, we're going to take, you know, this next week or two off as we try to come down (laughs) from this episode. And 
we got to gear up for the live show. Again, the live show, if you're anywhere in the vicinity of Los Angeles, LA Live on Saturday, January 13th, please join us. Tickets available at filmspotting.net. But we will have one show before that. It'll drop the day before, in fact, Friday, January 12th. And we'll probably, Josh, catch up with some of these bigger titles, maybe even talk a little Michael Mann's Ferrari. Oh, definitely. Those suits. Still want those suits. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Veronica Phillips and, for the last time, Betty Lavendero. Thanks, Thanks Betty. Betty. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.